0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Babbel, Quip, Mac Weldon, The Great Courses Plus, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible.
1: We had a little fun during the dark week last week with our special guest Yorma Taconi, who gave us his hilarious perspective on what it's like to actually wear and act in a $150,000 monkey costume that took four hours to put on every day. In the weeks prior, we covered the story of the Patterson-Gimlin film itself, the background of all the major players, and the accusations of it possibly being hoaxed. Next week, we're gonna take a super deep dive with costume designer Bill Munns on whether or not you could have even made a costume that looked like Patty back in 1967. He should know. His work on Return of the Living Dead, The Beastmaster, and Swamp Thing is greatly respected. He's also become an expert analyst of the Patterson-Gimlin film itself. So come back next week for that. But tonight, tonight it's time to tackle the scientific community's reaction to the PGF. This is where the rubber meets the road, or the scientists meet Patty. When we started this series, we expected, as we do with many of our topics, to dive deep into their analyses of the PGF and mine the data with the most research behind it. After all, this film, if real, is the holy grail of Bigfoot evidence, isn't it? Countless researchers with varying degrees and expertise must have thoroughly studied it. Well, it turns out, a lot of scientists dismissed the Patterson-Gimlin film outright, or if they did examine it, they were ambivalent about their findings. Some film experts just shook their heads and walked out of the room, mumbling under their breath, after only one viewing it would seem that poor Patty was too hot of a potato for many respectable authorities to tackle. A handful of scientists weighed in on Patty in spite of that, and you'll be surprised at what they said. In fact, some of them seemed surprised by their own observations. In a few cases, blatant skepticism evolved into the stalwart belief that Patty was real.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and
1: this is Forrest Burgess. To make sense of Bigfoot as a phenomenon, we have to try to understand why it persists. If Bigfoot is not an animal, but an invention, how do human actors keep the legend going, generation after generation? Anthropologist
2: David Daigling from his 2004 book, Bigfoot Exposed. Join us tonight for part four of our in-depth series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. And we're back. Tonight, it's time to Science Patty. Don't try to be all hip, man. You just sound ridiculous. (laughs) Uh, You're right. Uh, Okay, (laughs) well, here's something I think people are going to enjoy. You guys know that we added pint glasses to our store with our logo on them, right? And apologies, because we had a snafu with how they were listed. So they were hard to find the first few days, but they're in there now. Well, tonight we get to announce something else about the glasses.
1: David Spencer, this is your moment. So grab the kids and
2: play this over the speakers. Oh, nice announcer voice. Mm -hmm. For those of you that don't know, one of our listeners is the incredibly talented graphic artist David Spencer. Everyone who follows us on our social mead knows Mm -hmm. who he Mm -hmm. is. Uh,
1: Social mead. Social mead. Social mead. It's,
2: It's like social media.
1: Ah, Yeah, you know, I think your abbreviations and acronyms are clever,
2: but I'm not so sure. Yeah, there's a fine line between stupid and clever.
1: (laughs) That's Spinal Tap. Very good. Okay. Well then, anyway,
2: if you follow us on our social media Mm -hmm. and have seen the header image that's currently on our Twitter account and Facebook pages, then you've seen David Spencer's work. And some of you may even remember that some time ago, he did an unsolicited piece that depicts Forrest and I, in a childlike way, Mm -hmm. inside a wonderful rendition of Blanket Fortiana, which is what we call our studio. Mm -hmm. We were so fond of it, we wanted to translate it to something in the store, and now we have. You can now find pint glasses with a Blanket Fortiana image on them in full color in our store at Astonishing
1: Legends, as well as all of our sponsor codes by the listing at the top there. Just go to Sponsor Codes. But wait, there's more. (laughs) In true paranormal style, Scott seems to think these are
2: going to fly off the shelves. That I do. And if they do, then we will be commissioning David Spencer to create a limited edition collector's set of glasses done in his inimitable style. Those of you from our generation, the ancient ones, I'll call you, Mm. may remember the Burger King and McDonald's (laughs) collector glasses from our youth. Uh, Yes, collect all seven. Indeed. So not sure how many we're going to do yet, but we already have at least a few characters from the Astonishing Legends canon lined up. We may even get tests to come up with a nomination process. However, this is only going to happen if it seems like something you guys want. So we'll have to see if anyone even wants the Blanket Fortiana glasses, which I like so much I'm already setting like a dozen aside to assuage the hoarder in me. And just a quick reminder, folks, we wanted to tell you about our favorite new podcast aggregation app. It's called Himalaya. Go find it. It's a cross-platform app that you can get for your Android or your iPhone or whatever. You can even get it online. Download it and find Astonishing Legends there and give us a follow. All right, folks. Well, it's time to tunnel down even deeper into the rabbit warren of angles
1: that have revealed themselves to us in our series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. So tonight, we're going to listen to what the experts have to say. The very few, few experts that have bothered to weigh in. Actually, there are several experts who are specialists in primate locomotion, morphology, even hands and feet of primates, and we'll hear from them. But keep in mind, as we do, you're not going to hear a lot of really detailed scientific debunking of this, the Patterson-Gimlin film, because
2: most of them didn't even bother to look at it or make comments. Yeah, this has created a kind of conundrum with it, because the people that... Believe in it. Actually, a lot of them want to hear from experts, but a lot of the experts are afraid of the hot potato of taking Bigfoot seriously scientifically. Yeah, you can't even consider
1: it. Just to consider it makes you a wacko. But the few that have, that's not to say that there aren't criticisms with what's seen in the film. And there's a couple of flip sides to this. There's more than two flip sides. Yeah, it's a dodecahedron. There are criticisms, of course, and favorable comments and analyses of the film, but the ones that are critical... I like them because they're not looking at the social aspects of what kind of guy Roger was or the timeline or how they got the film developed and all that. It's looking specifically at what's in the film, which is what we should
2: be doing, because that is the scientific approach, scientific approach to the empirical evidence that the film itself is, which is irrelevant to all the people around it that made the film.
1: Right. So when you do that, you're taking a look at what's in the film and asking is this possibly a hoax? Could this have been done by human beings or not? And when you do that, then if you rule out it being possible for humans to do these motions and actions in the configuration of time and space that we know of, or can only assume by estimates of this uh, film, then you look at it two ways. Okay, so if it can't be done, then what is making these motions? What is that thing? If it can be done, then how is it done? And can it be duplicated? So, one thing I'll say here before we get started, and we hear from these scientists who have weighed in, is that a lot of the consensus has been well, I don't like this about it, or this doesn't look right. And it could be done by a human or could not. You will hear both sides of that argument. But nobody, scientist, enthusiast, Bigfooter, debunker, or skeptic, has been able to outright prove it's a hoax. They've only left the door open for that possibility. So it's still a hot-button issue for a lot of people who have actually taken a look at this and have an interest in this. So first, what we're going to do is look a little bit back onto the history of what happened at the time that the film came out, and how was it received? What's the history there? And then we'll look at some of the more major hypotheses and deductions and even theories about what is actually seen on this film from the more notable scientists and experts and even just learned enthusiasts. Because as we've seen, some of the most learned people about these kinds of subjects aren't ones who have gotten a degree in them at some eiffel university. They've just devoted decades to its study and over that time have accumulated a lot of knowledge, which is worthwhile. So we can start off here by looking at a few conclusions that Chris Murphy had about Bob Hieronymus' claim about being hoaxed by him solely and he was in cahoots with Roger and, I guess, in turn, Bob Gimlin. Chris Murphy makes the following points. One, that it's ironic that the Patterson-Gimlin film issue is a reflection of the entire Bigfoot question. Scientists want a body before they will recognize the creature. Bigfoot believers want a costume before they will recognize that the film is a hoax. Quote, No matter how much circumstantial evidence one gathers, such is still not hard evidence. It's entirely possible the film is a hoax because, as the saying goes, anything is possible. The same is not true of probability. Here, one must go far beyond hearsay and truly judge evidence on its own merits. And I think that's a good way to go forward here. You know, what he's saying is that, yes, you can't rule out it being a hoax, and that's what has made this debate so lively and long-living. If it had been proven a hoax a long time ago, we wouldn't be hearing about it, other than that, what a fantastic and fun hoax that was for the 70s. But it hasn't, so the question is still open. And so that being a possibility that the film is a hoax, well, you keep that on the table, you look at everything again as the approach that we like to take. But as I tell Scott, we're neither totally believing or totally skeptical just for the sake of either. That's right. There are those who wish we were buying into one topic more than, than others. I'm sure there are a lot more comments from people that wish we were more skeptical on some issues, but that's fine. We're going to let the story and what we find dictate that, not just to be skeptical for skepticism's sake. So if you're seeing some kind of evolution of belief here or or thinking, that's kind of what's happening over the course of this series, is that we're letting what we find guide our thinking and reasoning on this. And so to us, there are
2: things that are going to be more probable than others while still considering everything. So tonight, we're going to start off by telling the story of how the film was first received by the scientific community immediately after the incident. Then we're going to summarize a few of the conclusions by the more commonly referenced scientists who've actually weighed in on the Patterson-Gimlin film. Yeah, the conclusions, you know, the ones that aren't outright dismissals
1: after a single viewing, came about after studying and analyzing the film for some time. It seems, though, that no researcher was convinced of Bigfoot's existence right after
2: the screening. It just wasn't enough for them. So focusing on what Forrest was saying a minute ago, there were two primary aspects of the creature in the film that scientists have dissected over the years. The morphology, or the body dimensions of Patty, and, of course, her walk. Oh, dissecting. I yes, just, <laughs> dissecting. <laughs> well, that's what they would have liked. If yes. they could have caught her, they would have liked that. Then we get into a whole other ethical and moral issue. Yes, indeed. There's no debate that Patty or whatever is on that film isn't an actual being. The question is, is what's on the film more human or more ape-like, or some kind of compelling combination of both? And then are these dimensions and motions even humanly possible? Because if not, then we can say there's no way that it's a hoax. But then going back to the social science aspect, if it is humanly possible, is it probable they would have been known about by Roger Patterson? And if it's Bob Hieronymus in a suit, him too. Would he be an expert on primate movement? Would either one of those two men be an expert on primate movement to the point where it would fool a scientist with regard to her gait and locomotion?
1: Yeah, that's always the big question. People could say, well, look, it's humanly possible, but is it possible by these humans? Did
2: these two cowboys conspire and, and effectively... Have they been fooling anthropologists ever since the film was shot in 1967?
1: Right, because it's one thing to know what a primate might walk like. We're going to take a look at some primate motions, one being a compliant gait, which is also debated amongst the anthropologists today, if that is a real factor with primates locomotion. And if these guys knew that, could they pull it off? Certainly that walk can be taught, but how well could these guys have done that and have an excellent suit to boot? Okay, so now first we're going to take a look at the initial scientific reaction, the reception by scientists as soon as the film was shot, probably within a month or two. And we're going to go back in history here and just kind of see what actually happened when the film is first introduced by people who are experts or You hope to have experts look at it, and that says something about the motivations of Patterson. Well, in regards to how people took Patterson's actions and attitudes at the time surrounding the incident and gauging his behavior and acting, was he acting? Was he acting naturally? There's the statement you could say by proponents, well, he wouldn't have acted that way if it was a hoax. Right, you know, which be... I
2: actually said, and
1: we've been <laughs> we've been called out upon that. Well, you can yeah. look at it that way, but the counter to that is that's exactly how he would have acted if it was a hoax. Well, if he was good at acting or genuinely excited, of course he's going to act in a convincing manner either way. And logically, Patterson's supporters make a point that if it was a hoax, even a well-executed one... Roger Patterson illogically wanted a lot of scrutiny of the film. So you can kind of parse this back and forth. But my point here in making this comment is that either way, if he was a good actor or if he was genuinely excited then it's going to be convincing. His actions and attitudes, you can say, well, there you go. You know, that's the conspiracy theory thing. It's like, that's what they want you to believe. Yeah. No, no, the government's trying to get you to think that way. Well, that's how they would act exactly because you're falling into it. So it's just a logic loop there. You can go back and forth. But what you can say is if Patterson acted too nervously and skittishly or just weird in wanting some people to look at it, not others, and, and he's acting really cagey about it, then, yeah, you could draw suspicions about his motivations here and what really went on. Why doesn't he want a bunch of people to look at it? But that wasn't the case. He wanted the scientific community to have a look immediately. He wanted them to take it seriously because he believed it was convincing evidence. So logically, if you did commit a hoax for fame and profit, would you want a lot of scientific scrutiny? Well, maybe. Maybe that's part of your clever scheme here. But more analyzation brings more possibility
2: of it being found out. Right. That just makes sense. Yeah. And so it's funny because a lot of people, we've read in several of these books that there seems to be an overarching implication that, hoaxers are not that well-educated, not that bright. They're just practical jokesters, and they're getting in on this. And then there's other people that, if you're still thinking this is a hoax, then the other side of the spectrum here is that Roger Patterson is a freaking genius. He's he's one of those rare criminal geniuses. Yeah, because, I mean, we we always talk about J.T. Walsh in The Grifters, but he was a genius. He lost, he winds up losing his mind, but he is also a fictional character. Like, con artists with that kind of extreme skill don't really exist that much in the wild. They're out there, but they're super rare. And I don't think Roger Patterson was one of them. That's just my personal, and I know I've got all my confirmation bias. (laughs) I should wear a shirt that says confirmation bias. Ooh, that's a good idea. Oh, (laughs) wait, but we're going to put that in the store. But that's the point, though. I'm just saying, so yeah, him wanting the scientists to look at it, calling people to bring down tracking dogs. By the way, when we said the dogs never made it, that was because of the rain. So maybe he made a horrible rainstorm come in too because he's God. <laughs> no, that's my whole point. It's, well, just, there, yeah. it's It gets to be ridiculous. But the flip side of that is mm-hmm. he would have had to been a narcissistic sociopath who thought that his con was so good that they could bring every scientist in the world and they would never catch him because he was such a genius. Again, not how this man has been described by his friends, including <laughs> Bob Gimlin, who we met and asked about him. Oh um, Yeah, well, none of his friends thought the two of them had,
1: uh, I'm not going to say the smarts they're smart guys but in practical working class ways and they certainly know their business of horsemanship but are they primate experts are they film experts and all that and you know what going to your point about JT Walsh yeah, he goes he goes crazy and that is like a, a the crazy genius The other thing that does not exist really in life is the criminal genius Lex Luthor
2: type, because imagine what trouble we'd all be in if that were the case. One other point I want to make here before we get back on to your outline here is that that would mean that Roger Patterson went from thinking that he could make a living or a fair amount of money off of tiny wooden wagons and goats or ponies and horses that mm. he was going to take and sell to petting farms. He went from that to executing the most brilliant money-making Bigfoot scheme of all time, which, by the way, it also didn't make that much money. It did, but the Atley took it all. So just keeping <laughs> yeah. all of that in mind because right, right. there's the other side of it. Brilliant hoax, a lot of work went into it planned it out, studied primates, fooled all these anthropologists, and fooled all these experts on primate locomotion, yet allowed himself to then be conned out of all the money from it by his opportunistic brother-in-law. Yes. It doesn't jive. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> the, so
1: The con man getting conned aspect yes. here. Well, look at the other hoaxes and hoaxers that have surfaced throughout the years since this time period here, like those two guys, remember who had the fake Bigfoot, which was a bunch of a massive fur in a styrofoam cooler and they threw a bunch of guts onto it. Yeah. That
2: was just a few years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I didn't even bother to or, you know, that up. A few cause... to me, I'm, I'm old. So I guess <laughs> <Yeah>. it <probably laughs> could have been like 10 years or something, but yeah. It wasn't that
1: long, but like yeah. maybe four or five or six years at the most. And my first thinking and seeing that, because remember they showed some kind of vague, not blurry photos, but they were, they were a little vague, not too detailed. Something that looked like it was made out of brown acrylic fur, with some guts on it, and I thought... Here it is.
2: Did you hit it with your car? Like, what happened to this thing? This is from Snopes. Bigfoot captured. Rick Dyer claims he lured (laughs) the creature with $200 worth of ribs before trapping and killing it on September 6, 2012. He plans to take the body on a nationwide tour. That's right. Yeah, there you go. Well, you look
1: at that, and you look at Ray Wallace with the wooden feet cut out forms tromping around the woods, and just the lifelong things that he did... Where it really got silly. Yeah. And I kind of get it. We talked about this before at the time here. When we, we talked about the series where I could see doing that. I do enjoy a, a fun-filled practical joke, which you then tell the person about soon after before they ruin their lives over it or make a fool of themselves that, you know, like him putting the tracks around the bulldozer or whatever. Yes. <laughs> the, the piece of machinery here. And the guy freaking out like, oh my gosh, look at this. And then having a laugh. And then later on, soon after that, you tell the guy like, no, come on, I I, I did that. It was kind of funny though. Just to get a rise out of somebody, a coworker. Yeah, I can see doing that. But doing that for a lifelong practice where then you're in the news and you're selling posters and you don't really have to because you have a successful uh, construction company. It's a little weird in that I think you like the attention. I mean, sure, you like a laugh, but there are easier ways to get one than carrying this hoax kind of thing and, and furthering it and pumping it up for years until your dying days, then you admit to it, or the fa- I guess the family knew, so it was okay to come out with that. And he'd, he'd admitted it to some close people, of course, and he had the footprints made. They had them carved by a friend. But what has been found around that, as I said, is I don't doubt that he probably did fake some tracks, but the variety and the locations seem, again, going back to that question of probability that he couldn't have done all of them with all the variations in the prints and the dermal ridges found and the deformities in some feet. Like, so you had a set of, you know, a hundred different wooden casts. It starts to become improbable to me that he could have been the founder of all this Bigfoot lore. Well, going back to what happened back in the day, Patterson really wanted everybody to see this because he believed, if you believe him, he believed in the material that he shot as being authentic, of course, because he was there and he always claimed that. He and Bob Gimlin had always sworn that this thing was real. it, It really happened. And maybe they were hoaxed by some expert crazy genius and a futuristic ape suit. But what they saw and experienced then that day was genuine. So back in the day of 1967, uh, November 1967, Life Magazine had contacted Patterson and pitched the possibility of a photo story on the film. But first, they wanted their own scientific vetting of it, which makes sense. Life Magazine was taken very seriously. It's uh, Time Life. They're, you know, they're one of the bigger magazines. They're still around now. They had kind of a hiatus, went out of business for a while. They're back, always since the mid-century, they've been taken seriously in a major magazine of note, of record. So they are going to want their own proof before they go with this guy who may or may not seem shady, who knows? They don't know him yet, so they wanted their own vetting. So they arranged for a scientific screening at the American Museum of Natural History. Patterson, Gimlin, and Deantley went to New York City to present the film. Well, the scientists in attendance didn't seem all that impressed, and it looked as though they had already made up their minds before viewing it, that it was a hoax. (laughs) They viewed it only once, didn't take any measurements or notes, didn't look at any stop frames or even ask questions. And within 15 minutes after the viewing, the three were told that the film was,
2: quote unquote here, not kosher. (laughs) So that was it. And that's indicative, I think, of, it's a closed-minded attitude in a way, because I think these, these scientists are sitting down And like you said, it seems like they've already made up their minds. Right. So it doesn't matter what's on the film. They can't see it. They can't receive it. They can't analyze it critically because for them, the possibility of Bigfoot doesn't exist. So the film doesn't exist. Exactly. Even though it's being projected right in front of them. It's right. It's
1: on the table. It's only a minute long. It's not like it's two hours and they got to sit through a documentary. It's sixty seconds, you know, of footage. And they saw it once, didn't ask to, hey, that was
2: interesting. Can we see it again? Well, yeah, and that's that's part of the problem with Patty is that she's bipedal. She walks like a human being, whether she's real or not. That's true. It's very hard to conjecture whether or not it's a person, if they had gotten footage of a Bigfoot and it was crab walking upside down, like the exorcism of Emily Rose, (laughs) then at least they have to say, okay, people really cannot walk like that. Yeah. And we're predating CGI. So then, But then it's like, if it's a tall bipedal furry thing walking like a person and you're already predisposed to believing that it can't possibly exist, then immediately you see it and there's nothing to convince you that it's not a person in a cursory one-time watching of it, bam, you're done. It's a hoax. Yeah, well, that again, it's not on the table at all,
1: so yeah. you can't have an, an analyzation of it. The only conclusion you're going to have is that it's fake. Well, it got a little better, but not much, when Life magazine then asked animal experts at the Bronx Zoo for a second opinion, and they seemed to be a little bit more interested. They asked to see it several more times, along with viewing several stop frames, at least, but in conclusion, though, they rejected the film and said there was, quote unquote, something wrong with the film. And they didn't elaborate any further. And with that second denial, Life Magazine lost interest in covering it. Yeah. So that was kind of the end of that. It's like, well, OK, not so favorable. But they didn't say what was wrong with it. That's all they said. So again, it's not an analyzing where you're saying what's wrong with it. You just don't think it's possible, probably. Right. And not wanting to put your neck out there speculating about it. But while Patterson was in New York, he contacted Ivan T. Sanderson, who became a proponent of the film after viewing it and personally helped to get it shown to some scientific audiences. But also, Sanderson contacted Argosy Magazine, who had expressed interest in getting other scientists to view it. They then arranged for four noted scientists, along with the director of management operations for the U.S. Department of the Interior, for a screening. Also present were journalists and an editorial representative from National Geographic magazine. The film and still frames were examined under high magnification, so this time it's a deeper look at it at least. But again, no one was that impressed as the New York Times didn't report on it, and the Post ran an article on page 12, and the National Geographic Society completely dismissed it. (laughs) The only positive outcome was that no one said it was a hoax. So at least at that early stage, no was denouncing the film as a fraud. But even still, there was a little serious interest by a few North American scientists, although the response from a screening in 1969 at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. yielded basically the same responses as that scientific screening in British Columbia, with the same objections coming up about the peculiar walk, the sagittal crest, and then about the short toes and the odor. Yeah, <laughs> just like so that can describe uh, a few people we know. Well, uh, about the short toes, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, who we're going to cover later on, he's from Idaho State University, says that Patty does not have short toes. It just appears that way because there's an extended sole pad at the base of the toes. And that's just not a funky apartment. That's talking about the, the sole pad. That is the padding of uh, the foot padding at the base of the feet. And what we'll get into later is why that might be, and it's not possibly because of the massive weight of this thing. But in any case, it's a weird foot by either ape or human standards, which is, again, that's an ingenious kind of thing, which I'll give Ray Wallace if he didn't know anything about it or he wasn't taking that uh, cue from any other previous sightings of which there have been plenty. It's not like he made that up, the idea of a large human-looking foot. I give him credit for going with that (laughs) rather than just rather than a three-toed alien or something else kind of weird. But one scientist at that Smithsonian screening, Dr. John Napier, was intrigued enough by the film and other evidence that he later wrote his own book titled Bigfoot. And it was Dr. Napier who examined the dermal ridges in the cripplefoot Bigfoot tracks and initially identified the deformation in the track as clubfoot. That's also not a club. That is what we talked about. Actually, we did talk about that a little bit in Loftus Hall. Yeah. Well, Napier would go on to become director of the Primate Biology Program at the Smithsonian. But one interesting thing about the Cripplefoot tracks is that, again, we're showing a little variety. So if you're a hoaxer, nice touch. You're adding something that anthropologists and people who are extremities experts are being fooled by and the extremely difficult, if not impossible, Feet of adding dermal ridges, which are essentially fingerprints.
2: Pun intended. What? Feet.
1: Feet. F-E-A-T. Feet. Ah, very nice. Yes. yes.
2: That, in the case of this Bigfoot, that would be a big, big feat.
1: feet. Big Very nice. Yes, okay.
2: <laughs> well, there's
1: there was also one notable proponent of the film, or at least somebody who gave it kind uh, of a thumbs up, primate thumbs up, Dr. Osmond Hill, who is head of the Yerkes Regional Primate Research Center at Emory University. And after a screening, he said that if the PGF was a hoax... It was extremely well done and effective and that it was strong enough evidence that an expedition to collect further evidence should be mounted. So we're going to hear that phrase quite a bit. So I apologize in advance. And that is going to be from the experts And that, well, if it is a hoax, it's it's really really well well done. done. Nice. Yes. (laughs) Argosy magazine, which by the way, I got the final Jeopardy tonight uh, or last night. Oh, did you? It came up. As, oh, uh, in, yeah. And Final Jeopardy is a question. Remember the uh, the guy who's been winning 15 shows in a row? Yeah,
2: there? he's, he's past a million now.
1: That's right. That was the final question. People are getting bored, I'm reading. I'm sure he's not. I'm sure after a while, he's tired of finding new shirts to wear. He'll take a dive. New stories, yes. <laughs> well, Argosy Magazine, however, they were impressed with the film, and they published an article by Ivan Sanderson in their February 1968 issue. And in that article, Sanderson said that Patterson, Gimlin, and Deantley had taken the film to Hollywood to be examined by motion picture special effects technicians. We'll mention that a little bit later. So apparently their response was negative in that they're not lauding the film, but as we'll see a little bit later, they seem to be also baffled by it. So we'll take a look at some of the Hollywood reactions towards the end of this episode because they're interesting and I wouldn't say as definitive possibly as the scientific conclusions or the analyses But interesting, from a costume aspect of it, getting back to that
2: angle. Yeah, which we're going to go deep on that, too.
1: Yeah. Well, even though the scientific community largely ignored the film, it gained attention in North America, as we talked about earlier. Just it was a little bit of a sensation, not much, but it became known. And along with Argosy, three other major magazines ran with the story, and that was National Wildlife. West Magazine and Reader's Digest, which also published it in their international edition, giving it a wider audience with European readers. And I know not many people even know what Reader's Digest is nowadays. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what they're reading or digesting, but it was a big deal when I was growing up. And that's where you'd find a lot of these fun I little stories. It. Well, that's what yeah. got the Lagina brothers thats right excited, remember, about yep, Oak Island. About I read Island. that same exact article and it being the digest, it's a shortened version or, you know, they're readable bites. So it's nice to pick up a story or two while you're waiting for something. And so they had a huge readership and that kind of made them more known in Europe, but mostly it was a North American phenomenon. And of course, Canada, because they live with it and they have a much more open attitude about it in Western Canada anyway. But largely, I think the guys who were trying to get the film noticed eventually realized that they couldn't depend solely on North America and its scientists.
2: Hi, I'm General Josh Mikowski from Erie, Pennsylvania, home of the Pepperoni Ball, Smith's Hot Dogs, and the Pizza Bomber. And you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook
0: and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show.
2: Now, because Roger had been looking at Bigfoot for quite some time before this happened. And he was actually known to the researchers we had mentioned earlier in the series, Renee DeHendon and John Green, personally, before the sighting at Bluff Creek. And there was nothing to indicate to them that the film was a hoax, but they certainly had to consider that possibility. Well, of course,
1: yeah, you don't, you're putting your name to this and your reputation and your livelihood in a way. So you also
2: want to confirm that this guy's not just a goofy, key-jangling hoaxer. And that comes around to a point of, of something that we've learned over the years of doing our series, the people who manage to claw their way up and be taken seriously as researchers in these kind of phenomenon, because there's not a lot of them, but the ones that do, they guard their reputations very, very carefully because they know that there is a good portion of people out there when it comes to exploring something like this, like a cryptid, or if you're, say, Jay Allen Hynek and you're exploring UFOs or, or that kind of thing, there's people coming out of the woodwork that are probably not quite right, and you have to be careful that you don't besmirch your own reputation by engaging with them. So mm-hmm. no matter what the relationship is, DeHendon and Green have to be real careful about this. By the way, we have some amazing pictures of Renee DeHendon that we were given permission to use by listener Rob the Toon Man on Twitter. <laughs> who, and So if you go to the website for this particular episode, you'll see some of those pictures that he sent in of him and his daughter posing with Renee Hinden and John Green before they passed away. They are both they both moved on to the other world now, so they know the truth, but we don't, unfortunately. Anyway, as I said, they had to be careful. They had to make sure that this wasn't a hoax, even though they knew who Roger was. They checked out the backgrounds for both Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin, and nothing popped up as a red flag for hoaxing, with DeHinden paying extra close attention for anything in the film that might give it away as a hoax. Now, while DeHinden and Green had come across some discrepancies about some of the details of the incident that came their way or that they discovered when they were looking into everything, they didn't feel like any of those were a red flag for it being a hoax. So everyone who knows the story of the Patterson-Gimlin film knows that the details have... They're a little fluid at moments, as the story's retold from Roger and what's been told from Bob. They move around a little bit, but this is an eyewitness account of something that took about 60 seconds Mm -hmm. and was incredibly exciting and crazy, if you believe that it wasn't a hoax. There's some latitude there for a difference of opinion or a difference of the experience. When something like that happens to you, you're also in a state of shock. Right. So the way that you relay those details, it's not going to be some ironclad thing.
1: Well, what you just mentioned there is one of the criticisms of the film that's often brought up, and it's that tit-for-tat, back-and-forth, rondelet of logic or or reasoning in that you could say, well, if this was a hoax, then these guys would have gotten their story straight. It would have been ironclad. They would have worked it out. Every other detail was worked out perfectly, all the timing of getting out of there, getting the film, planning all that stuff, dressing up. They got out of there before a rainstorm and got back and got developed, blah, 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 whatever they did perfectly executed. And so their stories of what happened would have been ironclad. But then you have others that would say, well, these discrepancies, they make me give pause to the whole thing, that their stories aren't straight. So who saw what? Kind of like what Greg Long has said about the film and that if it were any other incident, some kind of commonplace thing, then maybe it wouldn't be such a big deal. But since this is such a big claim and an outrageous claim by Patterson and Gimlin that this must be scrutinized and these discrepancies
2: must be taken into account. Well, and this comes back to your allegory, which we've brought up at least a few times on the show over the years, but haven't brought up lately. And, <laughs> well, then, and then I want, time. Yeah, yeah, let's let's do it again. It's the whole thing about the truck. I was hit by a truck. I saw that person get hit by a truck. Was it a blue truck or a red truck? It was a blue truck. Later, it turns out the truck was red. Does that change the fact that the person was hit by the truck? No, it doesn't. And so what's happening is, I think a lot of times too, with people who are taking a skeptical look at things, when they find that somebody can't be precise about the details when they're telling a story over and over. By the way, Bob Gimlin's been telling the story now. For how many years? From 1967 till now. Yeah, he's 87 now. Yeah. And That's even true. I, when we interviewed him, I could sense that he was like, okay, this is what I say about this thing. He's in a almost like a tiger in a cage. He's mm-hmm. saying the same things at this one because he's having to say it over and over and over again. Yeah. But the point is, people look at this and they look at an event like this and not just this, whether it's the, the Welsh UFO flap, the school kids in Berwyn or the kids in Zimbabwe that saw the UFO. If they don't all say the exact same thing, it's aha gotcha this Mm -hmm. whole thing is a lie Mm -hmm. because you couldn't tell this exactly the same way or you two people didn't see the exact same thing so i'm sorry i can't believe any of this bring me some real evidence (laughs) and that's that's the thing that's like okay i'm gonna shut down you're just looking for this excuse you're pulling a thread they're pulling the thread they're trying to unravel the sweater from this one thread right it's also that cycle of logic where it goes back
1: and forth either way depending you know it's too blurry it's not blurry enough Here, it seems to be pretty good. It's not blurry,
2: and therefore it's being analyzed. People think it's 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 blurry. though. This is the funny thing. People think this is blurry because it was shot on film with old lenses, but it's not really. For the time, it's actually very, very sharp, and because film is chemical and not digital, and it's 16 millimeter, which is a larger format, you can blow it up a huge amount and see a lot of extra detail.
1: No, exactly. So a note on that, which I think we talked about, but most people, what they see Especially in these GIFs that are now going around on the internet, that we, I think we put a few up ourselves, but yeah. uh, you see it so often. You have to realize that is blown up from a large image. That image that you see, that iconic image of frame 352 or 354, or a little clip of Patty swinging her arms in one cycle of locomotion there and turning her head, that's been blown up from a tiny 16 millimeter frame.
2: Which is pretty sharp, but you're seeing a very zoomed-in image. Yes, and here's the other thing. It's been digitally zoomed in, Right. so it actually doesn't have the ability to zoom in effectively. It's making up information. Whereas if you're scanning the film and you have a scanner on it and you're dropping a lens down a modern scanner lens on top of that frame, you can blow it up a whole lot and keep a lot of the information. But you can't fabricate information when you take a YouTube video and you download it and you pull it into After Effects and you stabilize it and then you blow that up 500%. That information that is present on maybe a first-generation copy is not present when you do all the digital manipulation, mm-hmm. it's not there because all the digital manipulation is based on the smaller size that the image originally was. You're not actually blowing into the physical film. Yeah. I, I don't know if I explained that right. but Probably yeah. not. But <laughs>
1: the idea is that Kodachrome is a very sharp color film for its day, always was through its history. That's why it's so beloved by photographers And they're nostalgic about it. And if you look at a high resolution scan, like the one that we have on our website, which I think is 5K, it's actually pretty sharp. But yes, again, you're seeing it blown up and zoomed in so much that you're seeing the film grain, which is why it looks grainy. But my point about that argument is that, you know, being too blurry, it's the Goldilocks. It's not enough. It's too much of this, too less of that. It's not even somewhere in the middle that's satisfying. And with the argument about their overall stories not matching, you could say like, well, there you go. Aha, they're not matching. But you could say the opposite if it, everything lined up. See, there you go. They've rehearsed this. It's much too concise because if it were real, they wouldn't agree in all the details. They'd get some of them wrong. But this is all rehearsed. See, it's obviously a hoax. So you're just lost here. It's not a. It's a facile way of approaching an argument again, not analytical you're just kind of like well there you go anything's possible that's true or i i saw this on one of the on one of the bigfoot boards i don't believe this because they could have faked that costume where there's a will there's a way it's like well that's pretty dumb. Yeah. You know, it's just look, there's been a, a will to cure cancer or travel to Mars by very smart people for a long time, but we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. So just because you have a will to do something doesn't mean it's possible by everybody at any time of their choosing. So again, not a great argument. But what happened in the 70s, Scott, when
2: they didn't get much of a reception? In North America or even Canada. Well, in 71, De figured out that he wasn't going to get that far with the scientists in North America, both the U.S. and Canada. And he decided that he needed to go to Europe. The scientists there were more open-minded, but they essentially came to the same conclusions. De ended up traveling to England, Sweden, Switzerland, Finland, and using his own money, traveled to Russia, Mm. where he ended up having the most luck with getting the film to be seriously examined. And as you know from our Lake Baikal episode from (laughs) oh many moons ago, the Russians seem to be a little bit more open to the paranormal. Yeah, they're not as hung up. There's not as much of a stigma. And you know what? There's a point here I want to make that I thought
1: was fascinating that I learned or realized and understood while watching the documentary Third Eye Spies about remote viewing and their attitude about it. One thing I realized about the authorities here in the U.S is that there's kind of a cognitive dissonance in that they are very staunchly non-woo-woo, but also religiously and spiritually entertain a lot of woo-woo. Yeah. By no means casting any aspersions on religion. I'm just saying that when you have uh, Russia, who started off, of course, with the teachings of Marx and Lenin, and in communism, there is no divine deity controlling everything. It's just the state. It's just people. So they're very materialistic. And one thing that the film said was that Lennon, know, his approach, being an extreme materialist, in that, well, look, if there's some kind of mental apparatus that enables some people seemingly to read thoughts or get premonitions or target a location, whatever it is, they didn't have that back then, remote viewing, but certainly they were into studying ESP. Well, to them, being materialist, there's got to be something to it physical there's a mechanism there that we can study adapt and learn and capitalize on so it's not woo woo to them there's obviously there's a rational explanation i thought that was fascinating philosophically and yeah ironically they're much more open to this stuff because like well no if there are thousands of reports of some kind of ape in the woods there's probably an ape in the woods when we should go find out what that is and in Russia, they have their own Russian Yeti. They have, as we saw in the Dyatlov Pass, you know, the Mansi people there, the native tribal peoples, believe in the mink, and they're serious about it. Well, as I mentioned before in the series, I was over at Scott's house, uh, house-sitting for a weekend, and there was that documentary on the killer Russian Yeti. But they got some pretty interesting... Evidence, I would say, more so interviews, of course, with the local Mancy people who seem to be pretty serious about it. And they did get
2: one good Bigfoot yell or whatever it was. But- I hadn't gotten that far. I've only watched the... I only got to watch the first 15 minutes of that. I did not care for how liberally they were using the the post-mortem photos. Oh, well, yes. No, I know. It was kind of... I just don't agree with that. It
1: was sensationalized, to be sure. But in getting the interviews, though, my point is that they take it
2: seriously and they're not hung up on it. That's kind of the basic attitude there. Well, and that's why DeHinden found that the Russians were taking this seriously. He actually went to the Russian Central Scientific Research Institute of Prosthetics and Artificial Limb Construction, They studied the creature's locomotion and concluded that it was extremely heavy. Yeah, they were actually very interested in this film. The weight was indicated to them by how the creature's arms swung and how the knees bent when the body weight came down on the foot. Interesting to note, they said, bulk can be simulated, but not massive weight. They also noted the large muscle mass. They agreed to do some biomechanical work with the film, but unfortunately, they never got around to it, nor did they publish... Any official report. This is the downside to the Russian examination. Oh. <laughs> They'll look at stuff, yeah. but they're not going to tell you what they think about it. <laughs> well, not, not... The reports, yeah. you know, you can't get your hands on the reports. But No, not not from a, an official
1: entire institution's point of view, but there are some individuals, some scientists yes. who have looked at it and did issue a summary report of their thoughts and analysis of the film. And we're going to touch on the three reports
2: that are most often cited here. Well, They're, this is going to be Igor, Dimitri, and Dimitri. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> see, let's see, here's the thing now. When we're in the U.S. and we're talking about this stuff, we got a lot of bobs. Yeah. Now we're in Russia and we got a bunch of Dimitris <laughs> so, and Igor. Very, so very just, popular like, names. Yeah, yes.
1: Certainly, yes. No, these two fellows here are well-known with Bigfooters especially of the time, they both got very involved in it because they believed in it and weren't afraid to say so, and had some very interesting thoughts and, I I think, good attitudes about approaching the research here. So what we're going to look at next here are the individual scientists and experts, image experts, people who are familiar with the aspects you see in the film, and what they thought and what their summary thoughts were, the more notable ones that you hear about all the time. And just so you don't think as we go along that we're favoring the positive reviews, the favorable outcomes and summaries of the PGF over the negative ones, I wanted to make a point here in that, yes, there are going to be more detailed, positive outlooks on this film than detailed negative ones. Now, I will say that, as we talked about before, anthropologist David Daigling and his anthropology partner Daniel Schmidt wrote a pretty good, I thought fair, and balanced book about Bigfoot in general and
2: the Patterson-Gimlin film, Bigfoot Exposed, An Anthropologist Examines America's Enduring Legend, which we've done some quoting from and we'll be doing more. But right. Yeah. But as far as like
1: really breaking the film down and trying their own experiments and comparing their findings to the data presented to them by other scientists and what they thought about it, there aren't a lot of really detailed negative or unfavorable breakdowns of the PGF. are just aren't. What we're going to find here generally are scientists who study the film a little bit, but have problems with individual pieces of it or the data or conclusions of other scientists, not really going through it step by step, frame by frame, and saying what's wrong with it. Just so you don't think, again, we're favoring one over the other. Or, of course, we have our own opinions about it, But the positive and negative will be interspersed throughout this next section here. So, yeah, the two Russians that Scott just mentioned, Igor Burtsev and Dmitry Bayanov, are two proponents of the film who've been very vocal about it and also interactive with the American research efforts. So unlike the previous scientific reception in Western Europe and North American Canada that the film got so far, Igor Burtsev and Dmitry Bayanov from the Smolin hominology seminar affiliated with the Darwin Museum in Moscow, they were very interested in the film. And as we said before, part of this reason they're so open to it is that the Soviet Union has their own relic hominoids to study, and they take that research fairly seriously. They record it, they document it, they look into it. So Dehinden gave Burtsev and Bayanov copies of the film and footprint casts. The two then
2: gave the PGF the most detailed analysis at that period in the mid-70s. Right. So this is significant because this is a thorough technical analysis that is contemporaneous with when the film was made, as opposed to the ones that have been done decades later, which have obviously their own value and a very great value. But this is interesting because these guys are working in the same time period, that the film was made. So they have all the considerations of what the most current technology at that time would have been with regard to being able to hoax it and understanding culture, global culture at that Mm -hmm. time and the global ability to make something like this fake.
1: Yeah, and they're really the first two scientists to take it this seriously where they are now going to really do a deep dive on this and a really detailed analysis. So they're significant for that fact alone. Just the first two, yeah, this looks interesting. We're going to take a look at it. Well, after studying the technical aspects of the film, like the frames per second rate and Patty's morphology and movement, Igor Burtsev and Dmitry Bayonov presented these conclusions. One, the film passed all their tests and scrutiny within their three criteria of distinctiveness, consistency, and naturalness. Quote, the Patterson-Gimlin film is an authentic documentary of a genuine female hominoid, popularly known as Sasquatch or Bigfoot, filmed in the Bluff Creek area of Northern California not later than October 1967.
2: I want to point something out here at Mm -hmm. this point, too, because I feel like it might have slipped through the cracks a little bit in our overall presentation. It's a known known to us, so we're not even mentioning it. I want it to be absolutely clear that the film has been thoroughly analyzed for the location of the shoot and that many parties, Bigfoot researchers, have taken a very, very thorough look at the location and were able to find the exact spot in Bluff Creek. Most recently in 2011, I think. Uh, Something like that, yes. Yeah, there was a team that went back. There's been multiple teams there. A lot of the trees are still standing, and this is when we get back into film territory. The the trees have names. They've got a name for each tree. They call one the ladder tree, and then Mm -hmm. they've got another one that's leaning. I can't remember that one's name, but then they measured out the terrain. They found debris and things that were in the original shot that, believe it or not, are still there, which I was blown away by because Mm -hmm. I I used to spend a lot of time near the Delaware River, and I was there for a couple of major floods. And I know areas like this area that Bob and Roger described with the log jam. And those areas don't usually stay the way... They are for that many decades because there's other floods that happen in the intervening decades. So it was surprising to me that a lot of stuff is still there. Mm -hmm. It's now fairly overgrown, though. So it's harder to find now than it was even just 10 years ago. But The point is, we just want it to be abundantly clear for anyone who's not super familiar with this story that there is absolutely no question that this film was shot in Bluff Creek not in Yakima oh, or anywhere right. else. Yeah. It was shot in Bluff Creek and they know exactly where it was and they have the coordinates for it. And we've shared those coordinates already in a prior episode of yeah. the show. So, yeah.
1: well, I didn't really think about that because there were claims that he shot it on the outskirts
2: of Yakima. Right. Where he lived. and yeah. went there to hoax it. So I just wanted to point that out. And there's analysis as well. I've seen actually analysis that looks like it was done in a 3d environment with how far things were, where they're trying to calculate focal lengths and all that. We're not going to get into all that. We just wanted to let everyone know that the location has been confirmed. It's a real place and it can be found with precise GPS coordinates even to this day.
1: Yeah, it's vastly overgrown now with vegetation, but I will say just very simply... It doesn't look like south or southwestern Washington state. It looks like northern California, two separate, different, totally different things. And I believe even the location west of Yakima, where they thought it might have been hoax, doesn't look anything like that. The trees look different. The terrain, everything looks different. Yeah, you can spot
2: that kind of stuff. You know, and it's funny because being a North Carolinian and they've wound up undoing all the laws that made it a, a good state to shoot in. But in every time they ever shoot something in North Carolina, because I'm familiar with the flora and fauna, I spot it immediately. Mm-hmm. You spot it immediately. Even three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, it was obvious to me that was a North Carolina <laughs> mountain town. I knew it yeah. in about 10 seconds. You yeah. know your terrain. Anyway, so it's Bluff Creek. That's where it took place. We all know that. There is no dispute about that yeah. with any party involved in investigating the Patterson-Gimlin film. Getting back to the the three Russians, though. Yes. Wurtsev, and Bayanov, I think, had some pretty
1: interesting, I think, just attitude-wise, really good comments about this in general. They seem to be guys that we would like to hang out with and talk talk to. Similar approach and ideas about how to do research and look at these kind of stories. Here's a good quote. According to Dr. Thorrington Jr. of the Smithsonian, now he's talking about that, remember the, the viewing way back yes. at, the, at the Smithsonian? So this is not too long after that. Yeah. Quote one should demand a clear demonstration that there is such a thing as Bigfoot before spending any time on the subject. And that is the internal quote here. And then uh, I believe Burtsev goes on to say, if by a clear demonstration, Dr. Thorrington means a live Bigfoot be brought to his office, then it would be more of a sight for a layman than for the discriminating and analytical mind of a scientist. Yeah, that's a quote. quote. I love that quote. So, yeah, what he's saying here is that, well, if you think you need a body, then, you know, that's something that somebody who doesn't know anything about science would demand, not a scientist, because you don't actually need a scientist because, yes, it's true, you don't have physical access to the creature, but compare it to a doctor who diagnoses by looking at x-rays, or a geologist who studies Mars by looking
2: at photos of the surface. Also, here's the other thing about Dr. thorrington's quote, one should demand a clear demonstration that there is such a thing as Bigfoot. Here is a film that is a clear demonstration <laughs> that there might be such a thing as, like, yeah. where do you start then? Why, well, no, we can't start with the movie. We have yeah. to prove it first. But wait, there's a movie of it. Why no. isn't that the starting point? It's, it's just... just th- it's not enough. It drives me crazy. I know. It's, it's yeah. not enough
1: for him. It's not enough for Greg Long or or I would say most skeptics, which is just fine. Bring me a skull know, first. Th- then well, I'll watch the movie. Well, okay, you, fine. You, you need to bring in... Yeah, you got to bring in tissue, but that brings in ethical dilemmas nowadays yeah. that they may not have had back then. But even back then, people who
2: had a chance to shoot at them, just they couldn't bring themselves to it because they looked too human. That story has been told quite a few times by yeah. people who have cited them who had... A moment where they could have shot a Bigfoot, and they didn't because it did look too human to them. Right. Here's a few more interesting things
1: from their statements. Burtsev, Bayanov, and DeHinden co-authored a study titled Analysis of the Patterson-Gimlin Film, Why We Find It Authentic. Mm. An interesting statement from the study comes from sculptor Nikita Levinsky. He was a famous sculptor of the time, and he stated, quote, the better a costume from the anatomical point of view the worse it would be from the viewpoint of biomechanics. A clever costume on a moving hoaxer would expose, not conceal a fraud, end quote. Right. So that's his thinking as somebody who studies anatomy and, and it's go, yeah, makes art. Yeah, it's going to work anatomy.
2: one way or the other. Making it work both ways is nearly impossible.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I take this to mean that a more anatomically accurate costume... That was tight-fitting to the wearer, so it would be more, I guess, if you wanted, you know, again, I'm thinking this person has to be a huge bodybuilder you know? yeah, <laughs> with well-defined muscles for that to come through on a skin-tight suit made of spandex, which wasn't around at the time, but that this tight-fitting outfit then, if you didn't exactly look like Patty, would look more unrealistic when you're actually moving around in it. So it would have to be a extremely sophisticated and complicated suit with maybe, you know, things that were moving on it to give that kind of jiggle and muscle mass appearance when it moves, you know, a loose detailed costume will let you get away with much more when you're moving in it. Right. That's why when you see a Bigfoot film and the legs look baggy, like, yeah. Okay.
2: Well, that's what our costume looks like. By the way, before this series is over, I do want to make a short film with the costume. I think we're going to, I'm going to put it on and I'm going to do the compliant (laughs) gait. (laughs) And we're going to film it and see how crappy it looks. right? And then that's going to be... Now, granted, our costume's cheap. And if you haven't (laughs) seen our costume, that's only because you haven't been to patreon.com slash astonishing legends, where you can see a movie we made a few years ago there. It's right there. You don't have to become a patron to watch the movie. And you'll see our very good friend... Mark DeAndre, who was in the very <laughs> early episodes of the show, in the Bigfoot costume. You tell us if yeah. you think Mark looks like a real Bigfoot. He made a good Bob Hieronymus. He's tall. Yes. He's in shape. Uh, yeah, he's,
1: yeah. He's a good actor. He he, he fit
2: very well. Now, Bayanoff wrote, a, this is Dimitri number one, Bayanoff <laughs> wrote a book called America's Bigfoot, fact, not fiction, from which the following statements were taken. Quote, The success of this research is a triumph of broad-mindedness over narrow-mindedness and serves as an example to the world at large, which seems to be in dire need of such a lesson.
1: Isn't that nice? Yeah. Again, when you're not hung up on how you look, and you know, of course, they benefit from their scientific community not being so hung up. Obviously, they're human beings, too. There's petty rivalries, jealousies of one's theory over another that's just going to happen with people. But in terms of just considering this stuff, they'll take a look at it and they will analyze it and take it seriously and see if there's anything there to it. Whereas we here in the States won't bother with that. And if you do, then you do
2: suffer the wrath of your contemporaries. Now it's time to talk about Dmitri number two. We had lots of Bobs, like I said, it's Russia. Now we got lots of Dmitrys. This is Dr. Dmitry Donskoy. Wait,
1: do- wait a second. Yeah. I'm not sure that Dimitri is the equivalent of Bob
2: over there. Well, I'm not saying it's the equivalent. okay, but uh, there are a fair amount of Dimitri. as long as that's clear. Dr. Donskoy is chief of the chair, which is my new favorite title. that's I'm mm. chief of this chair that I'm sitting <laughs> in. A uh, chief of the chair of biomechanics at the USSR Central Institute of Physical Culture, Moscow. Russia. And of course, it's not the USSR anymore. This was his former title. Right. And it's also not Moscow, Idaho, which is a real city. Well, yeah, but not too far from some purported Bigfoot areas. Yes, this is a different Moscow, Bigfoot, Moscow. Right. Anyway, Moscow, <laughs> Moscow <laughs> Russia. Dr. Donskoy had a favorable conclusion about the film. Now, this analysis deals specifically with the movement and physicality of the creature, Patty, on the film. Now, after careful examination of the walking motion in the film and the stills from it, Dr. Donskoy's impression was that it demonstrated a fully spontaneous and highly efficient pattern of locomotion.
1: Well, so does this help attribute to what witnesses say, you know, when they they see claims of Bigfoot moving very quickly? Albert Ostman, remember that? Yeah. The thing covered tremendous ground in a short amount of time, and... Also, Fred Beck's ape story. Remember they shot one multiple times. They were sure they hit it. They go to the spot where it should have fallen dead and they see this thing running up the hillside. Yeah. Up the side of the canyon.
2: I mean, if they're real, if you believe any of this at all, Mm. and they're real and they live in the woods where they've lived for generations. Yeah. For however long. Who knows where they came from, but I think the implication is if you're not going with a supernatural explanation, which I know some people are. Well, none of these guys are either. They've been around for a long, 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 long time, Mm -hmm. and they've evolved from a species that is very adept at getting around in the woods and also adept at staying hidden, which belies a a high level of intelligence.
1: Well, there's two opposing theories here from the, the people who love Bigfoot. I wouldn't say the scientists love it. No, some are actually very interested in the phenomenon and want to study it as a natural, previously undiscovered or uncatalogued primate creature. Isn't it
2: so nice that we don't have reputations we have to worry about? We can just talk about
1: whatever we want. We can worsen ours. We've got nothing to lose.
2: (laughs) Whatever we have, (laughs) we can cheapen it, I can tell you that. Yeah.
1: Not too far to go, but that can happen. But my point is that scientists here, as you'll see, really want to study it. The ones that take it seriously and think it could be real, it could be a possibility with these reports. It's just that it's been undiscovered, and unknown to science, somewhere between what we know as gorillas and orangutans, and humans. And there are some, as we'll see, that actually attribute it to the class of Gigantopithecus blackie, a giant ape that used to exist, and maybe still does, extant. But what we're looking at here on the other side, and what I was referencing, was that there are those who do believe that maybe there is some kind of skinwalkery type of supernatural element to them that allows them to move so quickly and disappear and, you know, so we all kind of know about that. Yeah, well, we'll bring
2: that up in our conclusions, I think. Yeah.
1: I feel sure that's going to come up. (laughs) Right. But you're not going to get that from these serious scientists. They're going to study it as
2: a real creature with specific walking habits. Right. And what Dr. Donskoy said, essentially, was that in all the strides of movement, there was good coordination with the arms and legs, or what is known as cross-limb coordination. He said the creature has big energetic strides. When a human makes those long strides, they walk very fast and the momentum created overcomes the braking effect of the leg being put that far forward. Momentum is proportional to mass and speed. So the more massive the biped, the less speed is needed to overcome the braking effect of the legs when striding. The opposite is true. The less mass, the more speed needed to overcome the braking effect. Now, I would interpret this as meaning if a human were making those biggest strides, they might appear to be jogging or looking more like a speed walker. Yeah, so you you understand the concept
1: here. You have that weight and momentum of a large, heavy mass moving forward. If a human were to do that, then when you put your foot that far forward, it's slowing you down to do that. Right. That's the braking effect. You have to have overcome that
2: loss of momentum. Exactly. Yeah. The character of the swinging movements indicate massive, strong arm muscles. Now, Dr. Donskoy also said that the creature's legs bend with each heel strike, absorbing the shock of the very heavy weight with each step. You can see certain leg muscles tensing in preparation for each powerful toe-off, contributing to the rapid forward progression. This is something that you would not notice If, for example, and this is our own observation, if you had Bob Hieronymus wearing a cowboy outfit, which likely would be a button-down shirt and blue jeans, and having that underneath this Bigfoot suit that he said he had, you wouldn't be able to see that. Yeah, it's kind of a reminder. We did talk a little bit about this when when Bob had his claims
1: that he wore his clothes, his street clothes, under the costume. So, okay, well if that's the case then it's much less likely unless he was rippling with muscles that you're going to see even a skin tight suit kind of feature the muscle movement that some of these experts are seeing in the right places and tensing and relaxing properly with the motion either walking and or right. arm swing you can see deltoids on her too you know so yeah. either it's a very sophisticated suit with some kind of silicone gel pads or something that mimic the appearance of muscles in all the right places or it is a skin tight suit on a Charles Atlas type bodybuilder guy who is so well defined that the skin tight suit with the fur glued onto it is
2: giving the appearance of this natural muscle movement. Dr. Donskoy also goes on to say such considerable knee flexion is not observed in normal human walking and is only practiced in cross-country skiing. And this is significant. We wanted to point out what's interesting about this is that you hear this with a lot of Bigfoot sightings when they say they see this creature walking. From all over the world, mm-hmm. people will say it looked like it was cross-country skiing. So yeah. that's, that's yeah. something that's consistent in what people are seeing. Donskoy goes on to add that this motion makes it appear that the creature is very heavy. He also said the leg joints exhibit considerable flexion, specific to massive limbs with well-relaxed muscles. The movement is fluid and easy, with no breaks or jerks in the extreme points of each cycle. So the overall point here is that Patty is not exerting too much effort in spite of how big she is. Right. She's well-muscled but relaxed, but moving at a good clip. But it would seem,
1: uh, whoever (laughs) hoaxed this then, is exhibiting a fluid motion for a large bipedal primate of that type. But again, it's not Ripley in the dock loader. But it's genius in that if it's a guy in a suit, then it's clever in that they altered it slightly, you know, enough, just enough so that it's not human, so that it would make these experts wonder about it and cause such debate in that, you know, you could have a guy in a suit, but look, if you're kind of bumbling around, they're not thinking that far ahead, or their thinking is not that sophisticated, so the guy's just walking like a big dude in a suit. And then these experts would say, look, he's just a dude in a suit. That's normal human walking. And not to say that this walk couldn't be duplicated by a human. Now, what's interesting, as we'll get to it, is that some experts say it can't be duplicated. Some say yes. And that's a big rift between... Equally credentialed and studied and learned professors and scientists who are just disagreeing on that point.
2: Yeah. And I think when you go to that, you have to think about the difference between just saying duplicated and precisely duplicated. Exactly. Anyone can imitate Patty's walk. Right. Doing it in the exact way that it stands up to a critical analysis mm-hmm. is what these scientists are arguing about whether or not a person can do that.
1: exactly. And, and, then, and then
2: the yeah. whole variable comes in about the frame rate thing with the camera. Right. So there's a lot of factors going into those assessments.
1: Yeah. And the other, you know, hard to assess thing with this is that you don't have somebody coming forward who said... I'm the guy in the film, and this is how I did it. Now, take a close look. So you sort of had that with Bob Herodimus demonstrating his walk for author Greg Long and his wife Pat Long, and them saying, well, there you go, there's the walk, he did
2: it. But that's not scientific at all. No, I could step right out here in my backyard and do it too. That doesn't mean that I'm the guy in the suit. No, it looks for the similar, record. right. And I can it, do an imitation of the walk. And I can't remember, is how tall is Hieronymus? We might be about the same he's height. Like, I can't remember he, he's kind of like, Yeah, he's 6'4", 6'5", I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm 6'2". He yeah. was also cut at this time. He's very built. Yeah. He was a muscular yeah. dude. So just that is important to consider. All right, well, getting back to Dr. Donskoy, he pointed out additionally that the strides are very confident and regular with no signs of loss of balance, wavering, or redundant movements. The sole of the creature's foot is large for the height by human standards. Unlike a human foot, there is no longitudinal arch visible, which may be a factor of the very heavy weight of the creature. The heel portion of the foot extends a considerable ways back. This helps the body with standing and aids the muscles by increasing force propulsion for walking. And what we're saying here about the heel extending back is that when you look down at your own foot, generally the back of your leg and your heel are pretty closely aligned vertically. But what we're saying about Patty is that where the break is, where her, the vertical part of her leg is, is actually sits a little bit forward of where the end of her heel is. So mm-hmm. that's an interesting observation. And here's some final quotes from Donskoy's analysis. Since the creature is manlike and bipedal, its walk resembles in principle the gait of modern man. But all the movements indicate that its weight is much greater, its muscles especially, much stronger, and the walk swifter than that of a man. And here's another quote from him as well. On the whole, the most important thing is the consistency of all the above-mentioned characteristics. They not only simply occur, but interact in many ways. And all these factors taken together allow us to evaluate the walk of the creature as a natural movement without any signs of artfulness, which would appear in intentional imitations. And one last quote from Dr. Donskoy, at the same time, with all the diversity of human gates, such a walk as demonstrated by the creature in the film is absolutely non-typical of man.
1: Well, there you go. I mean, and other scientists would say, well, that's his opinion. Yes. (laughs) Because there are some that say, yeah, outwardly, it appears to be non-human. Of course, we can all see that. But their argument would be that it is duplicatable by a human in maybe just a few minutes of practice or being taught to do that. But whether or not somebody knew to do that, that's another question. You know, and much of this technology that is being used to analyze bipedal mobility, you know, it has improved quite a bit since these analyses from the scientists of the 70s and several have disagreed with these russian scientists of course and of course these russian scientists disagree with each other's findings all the time so even though the technology has improved since these times in the 70s some things have not really changed and what's funny is some of these principles of of motion and mobility are still being debated today no matter the technology it's not like technology has solved all of our problems and have made scientists all stand on the same page in agreement. So, again, that's probably just human nature in your course of study and what you believe. As we've always talked about, even with archaeology or whatever it is, experts disagree all the time and will always continue to do so. So what we're going to do now, though, is take a look at some of the, I wouldn't call them more unfavorable views, but ones that are either on the fence or still have questions, still have some doubts about the validity of the film or its intentions or what's actually on the film and what that thing is actually doing to some who just believe that, yeah, I don't know, it just seems more like a hoax than it does real, which is all they can say. None of them really go out and solve the mystery that it's been debunked and it's a fake. All right. So who are we going to talk about first here? Well, one of them is a renowned anatomist from England, D.W. Greave. At the time, he gave an analysis of the film, and he knows his stuff. He's a reader in biomechanics of the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine in London, England. But he was also kind of on the fence about the film, too. And I I love, he has a few good quotes coming up here, which I love, because he took a serious look at it and really studied it. And again, when it comes to biomechanics, he really knows what he's doing and talking about here. But one thing you have to keep in mind about Grieve, as well as all these other scientists, We have a poor set of data by their standards and a limited one. It's just this film, which is old. It's not high def. So it's very clear, as we've said before, but it's limited. So his views kind of depend on the specifics about the film that could be ascertained at the time or are just unavailable at that time. So he's given a limited data set is what we're saying, as well as the rest of these. So you have to keep that in mind. Well, mainly two conclusions regarding the film speed and the authenticity of the creature were made by Dr. D.W. Greve, who is that biomechanical expert in London. One was that if the film was shot at sixteen or eighteen frames per second, a human being could not duplicate Panny's walking pattern. If the film was shot at twenty-four frames per second, the walking pattern could be duplicated. Primatologist John Napier came to a similar conclusion. He's another bigwig, we're talking about later on here. But Greaves' goal was to compare the creature's gait, how it resembled or, or differed to that of a human gait, and the parameters for comparison were stride length, time of leg swing, speed of walking, and the angular movements of the lower limb. The problem is that these measurements are known for humans under optimal conditions, which was not what Patty was walking in, and not at a consistent line in the film frame. So that's why I was talking about like bad data that you're you're going off of here.
2: Right. So the point is Patty is not standing on a stage with the little half circles behind her, like well, every you know MythBusters experiment, yes, and yellow and black bars for you to check. Yeah, and they don't have a standard for that for humans either. Right, they Edward Moybridge. Yeah, yeah, he's the, walking in front of a black screen. You know. Right, they, Edward yeah. moybridge didn't shoot. I mean, people probably don't even know who we're talking about. Yeah, go about, look but, it up. But he didn't shoot that, and the, all, all the studies that have been done about human locomotion were not done in the Bluff Creek stream bed. It's so hard the comparison, to compare. You can't make a direct comparison.
1: Exactly, yeah. it's not scientific. So since we we have all this human data from a pretty good data set of the variations of of different types of people, how tall they are, how they walk. You compare that, that known quantity to something that is really unknown in this film. Now, if you could get Patty on a stage or Bob Hieronymus or whoever, you know, it was that people claim is the guy that hoaxed it, then you could make a comparison but you don't have that. So again, there are a lot of factors about this film that are not ideal, but at least you have this clip. You you have a good sequence of walking, although a lot of it's jerky, it's bumpy. These guys did not have stabilization at the time. So that's another factor that didn't help. But from what they could tell, these are their observations. Now, this is interesting, though, about the film speed, because if the film speed were 16 frames per second, then, quote, this is from Dr. Grieve. The cycle time and the time of swing are in typical human combination, but much longer in duration than one would expect for the stride and pattern of limb movement. It is as if a human were executing a high-speed pattern in slow motion. I found that to be fascinating. So again, that's if the film speed were 16 frames per second. Now, same thing for filming at 18 frames per second unless the intrinsic properties of the limb muscles or the nervous system were greatly different to that in man. If the framing speed was at 24 frames per second, then according to Grieve, then the creature walked very similar to a man walking at high speed. If the framing speed
2: were even higher, then the similarities increase. I just want to remind everyone that Roger Patterson himself told John Green, Bigfoot researcher John Green, Mm -hmm. that he shot the film at 18 frames per second. However. The K100 does not have an 18 setting. it has a 16 setting. right On the other hand, we know that there have been experiments done that show that the K100, even when it's at 16, actually shoots at 18. Bill Munns, in particular, did, and he bought 10 of the cameras, I think, and you're going to be hearing from him in a later part of the series. He's a special effects expert and costume designer, and has also done the most involved film analysis of the film that's ever been done in history. But anyway, so the point of this is just, I want, we wanted to remind you why these frame rates are important. And to point out that Roger Patterson never said that he shot this film at 24 frames per second to anyone. Yeah. And he may have also known that the 16 was really 18. So that when he said 18, he may have known that it would have been at 18, even if the dial was on 16. But again, as Forrest said earlier in the series, additionally, the frames per second dial did not have click stops it was analog.
1: Right. So here's a few interesting conclusions by Grieve. One, quote, I can see the muscle masses in the appropriate places. If it is a fake, it is an extremely clever one. Boy, uh, weren't we going to get tired of hearing of that. Yeah, <laughs> it just keeps coming back. <laughs> right. But that's their opinion from that point on down when you're on the fence.
2: You know what I like about that is that a lot of the scientists like to say, if it's a fake, They're not staking a claim on that because they know that scientifically they can't deduce that. However, many of the skeptics and debunkers are like, it's a fake. Well, there's a lot of people. people. The scientists (laughs) are saying, well, if it is, it's really good. The skeptics just say, it's a fake. And then they circle around to why all the reasons that they think it is. So not all of them, by the way. I would say
1: debunkers because that is the more extreme where you just know. You don't need any proof. You just know it's got to be a guy in a suit. How do you know that? Well, you just know where there's a will, there's a way. Right. And that's what they would say. Well, Grieve has some interesting final conclusions here with his paper in being on the fence, you know, from a scientist's point of view, being on the fence with this kind of thing, which I thought were interesting. Because he also states that his, quote, subjective impressions have oscillated between total acceptance of the Sasquatch based on the grounds that the film would be difficult to fake to one of an irrational rejection based on an emotional response to the possibility that the Sasquatch actually exists. So he's, he's like, right. I can't even, I can't wrap my head around that if this thing is real. I don't tend to want to accept that. He's being honest. I thought that was fascinating. Although Grieve says, quote, the possibility of a very clever fake cannot be ruled out on the evidence of the film because a man could have sufficient height and suitable proportions to mimic the longitudinal dimensions of the Sasquatch, end quote. However, the wide shoulders would be difficult to achieve without making the arm swing and shoulder contours look unnatural. That's his thinking as well. So again, I think that's a fair position is that he just can't rule it out just based on the film, that it's not a hoax. But there are definitely some peculiar aspects to what he's seeing. Now, Grover Krantz and John Green disagreed with Grieve and thought he made errors with his measurements and reference points. But Grieve admitted that he was perplexed and unsettled that the creature might be real.
0: Hi, I'm Jenny in Aviano, Italy.
2: When I'm not practicing my Italian, I'm listening to the Astonishing Legends podcast. E ora torniamo allo show. Ciao. Okay, now, as I was talking about a few minutes ago with Mm -hmm. the frame rates, we want to go a little bit deeper on that. And we've touched on this off and on up until this point in the series. But what you can tell is that for all of these scientific analyses, the film speed or the number of frames per second that the film was shot at is greatly significant and can alter the scientific analysis for some of these experts. Igor Bortsev also analyzed the significance of the film speed. The Kodak K100 that Roger Patterson shot on had settings for the film at 16. 24, 32, 48, and 64 frames per second. Bortsov concluded that the film was shot at 16 frames per second by analyzing the vertical oscillations on the image as Patterson was running while filming. As we've told you, there's a point at which he runs, and that's part of the reason it's so shaky before it was stabilized here in the, in the past decade or so. It's very shaky, and he's running, so Bortsev was able to take a look at that and make a calculation on the frame rate. Grover Krantz, going off Bortsev's calculations, said since we know Patterson's height was five foot two or five three, you can reasonably calculate Patterson's running pace towards Patty and then match the bounces in the film to determine the shooting frame rate. Again, the most analyzed film <laughs> well, besides the Zapruder film. It's mm. just amazing how much people have looked at this. It's it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Based on that information, Krantz believes you can rule out 24 and 16 frames per second and settle on an actual frame rate of 18 frames per second. And I just want to remind you, as we said before, it's thought that these cameras, when, even when set to 16, actually shot at 18. Now, if Grieve and Bortsev are correct about the lower frame rate of shooting, then the walking pattern, according to them and several others, could not be duplicated by a human. Now, boards have incidentally also discovered a detail from the sole of the left foot in a still frame, which corresponded to a detail in a plaster cast. Mm-hmm. And that's very interesting because it makes a direct connection between Patty and the footprint impressions, which one might think would need to be created separately in the event of a hoax to be most effective.
1: What it says is that those casts were made from whatever- That uh, thing was that was walking.
2: Right. So it either had to exactly
1: match if it was a wooden footprint of some kind or some kind of a machine, hoax machine that generated a lot of weight and depression into the soil. It had to match what was seen
2: in the film. Right. Now, this is where it gets super fascinating. Renee DeHinden and others examining the incident site in Bluff Creek tried duplicating walking quickly in Patty's path and noted that none of them could speed walk it in 40 seconds so he eliminated 24 frames per second as the filming rate he also noticed that the previous horseback footage looks unnatural and jerky when it's projected at 24 frames per second so just to make that clear when you project a film at a rate that it wasn't shot at it looks funny this is how they made the keystone cops movies this it either looks sped up or slowed down if it's not at the right frame rate The other thing you can do mathematically, and what DeHinden did, was say, okay, well, if it was shot at this frame rate, we know exactly how long it would take to traverse the area that Patty walked, so we're going to try to walk it in the corresponding amount of time. So that's how they're making these calculations. Now, Patterson himself said that he normally shot at 24 frames per second, but in all the excitement, he didn't notice what frame rate setting the camera was on until later, According to Grover Krantz, Patterson clearly told John Green, as I said, that after the filming, he noticed the camera was set to 18 frames per second. Some people, however, think Patterson misidentified 18 for 16 because the camera does not have a marking for 18. It has one for 16, but not 18. And again, reminding you, the Cine Kodak K100 doesn't have any click stops between its settings of 16, 24, 32, 48, and 64. It's just numbers on the outside of the dial, and you rotate that dial to line up the little mark roughly with the right frame rate. Yeah,
1: meaning you could get the camera to shoot at any rate in between those. It's, it's a sliding dial, you could say. Yes. So you could have it physically set between 16 and 24. Yes. But you normally wouldn't want to do that if you're filming... You want to keep things consistent. Before you were going to do a normal shooting session, you would have it to one of those at your preference.
2: Yes. And back then, it was very hard to build a camera like that mechanically that would shoot at a specific rate and offer multiple rates in a variable way that would have hard stops for all the frame rates. That's why that dial was adjustable like that. They didn't have the ability to build an affordable camera that would allow you to click stop at 16, 24, 32, and 48. This was an accessible camera for the people. Was it? Yeah, because the technology wasn't there. They would have done it if they could, because the last thing you want is some kind of crazy variable frame rate, because then you've mm-hmm. got to match your projector up to it later. Mm-hmm. It was as state-of-the-art as it could be for its price point in this state of technology. Mm-hmm. Now, according to special effects makeup expert and film analyst Bill Munns, who is, again, a guest of our show, and you'll be hearing from him before the series is done— He'd heard via a researcher named Bill Miller that a Kodak technician had reported that even when the cameras are set to shoot at 16 frames per second, the mechanism actually shoots at 18. Munz went out and bought, as we said a minute ago, nine K100 cameras, and he has tested at least one of them. And it's going to continue to test the others. And actually, I meant to ask him about this. Mm I'm going to send him an email and see if he's done any more, and we will get back to you on that. Right. So now, you know who we should talk about is Dr. Grover Mm Krantz, who has my favorite first name. I love Grover. So (laughs) from Sesame Street. Yeah, from Sesame Street is a different guy, but who knows? Maybe they're named for each other. Mm. Forrest, why don't you tell us about Dr. Krantz?
1: Well, as we've heard quite a bit, he's probably the most notable, or I guess at this point, famous in the Bigfoot research fields here for being a proponent of the Patterson Gimlin film Now, he was a physical anthropologist specializing in evolutionary anthropology and primatology. And he became famous or I guess notorious for being one of the few scientists in that field to actually study Bigfoot beginning in 1963 and the Patterson Gimlin film and actually take it seriously. And he eventually came to be a proponent of it, although not at first. Well, Krantz is kind of a known figure in my region, at least with the older said, because he taught at Washington State University, WSU, Wazoo, for 30 years, writing 10 books on human evolution and authoring over 60 academic papers. So... He was the right type of expert to study this phenomenon, you could safely say. Oh, he
2: doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> well, 60 a... academic papers. Come back to me when it's somebody that's written 70. <laughs>
1: right. And the fact, though, that he, you know, has an emphasis in evolutionary anthropology and primatology. But yeah, I, what does that have to do with Patty? Like I said, it doesn't matter what you've studied, how many papers and all that another scientist or a group of them or the whole field could very readily disagree with your findings. And of course, that's what happened here. But Krantz first saw Patty as still frames from the film when they were published in a February 1968 issue of Argosy magazine. And at this first sighting, he thought they were some part of an elaborate hoax stating that it looked like quote, someone wearing a gorilla suit and quote, and that he only gave Sasquatch a 10% chance of being real But it wasn't until Kranz examined the cripplefoot plaster casts that were taken in Bosburg, Washington in December of 1969 that he started to believe in Bigfoot or Sasquatch, as he called them, which is my preferred term just because it's more fun to say. Sasquatch. The tracks were left in the snow, these cripplefoot tracks, and it was because they had microscopic dermal ridges or what we know as fingerprints. I, I think that's what fascinated him so much about these, along with a condition thought to be club foot, or as it's known, talipes equinovarus, which we talked about in the Loftus Hall series. The devil, that's why. Yes. And freaked
2: out. She saw Possibly her. she mistook someone with a club foot. Yeah. For the cloven foot of the devil. But imagine
1: seeing a Bigfoot track like that. You'd Again, very clever. I definitely want to know
2: if Ray Wallace created <laughs> he may have a had wooden it. Variables. footprint with a club foot Bigfoot.
1: I don't know. Again, it's a clever that's really That's right up twist. there with putting boobs on it. It is part of that. It is part of the, the variations that have kept people baffled. And you would say, well, of course, that's what a hoaxer would do. They'd throw in something that, you know, baffles people. And sometimes it happens. But often these jokesters, they're having a laugh and they're not that critical about it. Because as you would see from experience and history, they often are usually caught because there is a very hokey aspect to it, which is easily detectable. Well, Krantz was compelled to such a degree that he had both the FBI and Scotland Yard analyze the dermal ridges and heard back from Scotland Yard that their conclusion was that they were, quote, probably real, end quote, (laughs) (laughs) I, that's all I saw that in the wiki entry. I just thought, like, what? Probably real or probably probably real seems very accurate. I think is their assessment there. Well, Bossburg, Washington was also where Krantz met John Green and they remained lifelong friends after that. Roger Patterson was one of those who went up to the Bossburg site at that time to check out the prints, which advocates would say shows that he was genuinely interested in the phenomena.
2: He regularly yes. went out and, and But the, the opposing around. viewpoint there. Of course he would go there. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I, just to be fair, because yeah. I'm a proponent of believing Roger and Bob Gimlin, but still the opposing viewpoint would say that it's possible, and I want to make clear that I'm mm-hmm. accepting this possibility. It's possible that he both believed in Bigfoot and hoaxed it. Oh, that is also, yeah, yeah of and course. So you can't just say, I get that you can't say, well, why would he go there? If, if he wasn't it was serious. there, if he hoaxed yeah. it. And it's like, no. And this is something that we, just briefly, we've mm-hmm. talked about before. Folks that are in this position, and especially something that they become particularly obsessed with, often want to recreate something that they witnessed and did not get any evidence of, Mm -hmm. or they're so desperate to convince everyone else that it's real, they hoax it because of that. Yeah, Because they want everyone to believe, because they believe, even if they've never actually seen it themselves. So I do accept that possibility, although it is still irrelevant to the empirical evidence of the film itself in this case.
1: Yeah, again, you have to ignore that. None of this proves anything, really. Not to uh, bury the lead or give a spoiler away, but none of these people have definitively proven... The PGF one way or the other, which is why we're talking about it now. Well, we might still be talking about it if it were a really clever hoax that just people believe for 30 years and suddenly, boom, we found out it wasn't like, wow, what's what went on there that had people fool for so long? And what bugs me
2: the most about that is that a lot of people think that after Bob Hieronymus came out and said, it was me, I wore a costume. They did that. They got their cognitive closure. They shut down and they decided, oh, yeah, that story's a hoax. There's so much more to it. There's so much more to it. I hope we've shown that. Well, anyway, Grover Krantz was kind of one of those people who
1: just said, ah, it looks kind of fake to me. You know, we saw the stills, but he finally analyzed the PGF thoroughly. And after studying Patty's particular walk and factors, like her leg muscles flexing, he became convinced of the film's authenticity. And Krantz is one of the few scientists to even bother looking at the film. And Patterson thought most scientists would be interested because he believed in the footage as proof, finally, of Bigfoot. He just, I guess, maybe being naive... Or hoping that it would just go viral in the
2: scientific community. He just thought, like, well, here you go. You guys are going to be interested in this, right? I mean, look at this. This is, again, my second reason that Krantz is one of my favorite guys involved in this. The <laughs> first one being, and I'll remind everyone, mm. that you can see his skeleton. Oh. <laughs> That he donated to science along with the skeleton of one of his favorite Irish wolfhounds, standing on its back legs and giving him a hug all oh, the way up at his shoulders. Yeah, how cool is that? That that's how he is currently preserved. Well, he was what a cool dude. <laughs> he was and also he wasn't afraid thinker. to look no, into this. No, and that takes courage.
1: Yeah, no, his career you could say suffered greatly. I think it delayed his tenure and. It caused him problems, but I applaud the guy for at least standing up for what you believe in. I mean, I get it when people don't, because look, you got to feed your family. You got to publish books. You got to, get know. Yeah, it's understandable. You got to make a living. I, you, I get that. You don't want to risk so, your entire reputation, yeah. but I admire the people that do. Yeah, he believed in it. And so, um, you know, if you believe in something, it takes a bit of courage to stand up for it, right or wrong. Well, here are a few points about the criticisms that Krantz wrote about in his book, Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence. Now, these points he's going to make here are in defense or explanation of the common, more scientific objections about the film, as other scientists have put forward. Krantz confirms that human females generally walk different than males, but there is no such contrast in apes. This is because of the female human pelvis being wider for our big heads. Speak for yourself. All right, let's not go there. Apes are born with much smaller brains and their two sexes, have more nearly the same pelvic design. Quote, of course the female Sasquatch walks more like a man than a woman, and that is exactly how she should walk, end quote. Krantz also confirms the reason for the sagittal crest. Remember that, the pointy head? Yes,
2: (laughs) the conquistador helmet.
1: Yeah, the ridge that's freaky, but it does give her uh, the appearance of a pointy head, which again, nice touch by the hoaxer. Krantz goes on to say, it's not a male characteristic, but a consequence of absolute size alone. As the body size increases, brain size increases at a slower rate than
2: does the jaw. Yeah, I'll just read a couple of sentences here from page 200 of Chris Murphy's book, The Bigfoot Film Controversy, which has Roger Patterson's complete book, Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist?, which he wrote before the sighting, and then an update supplement that uh, Chris Murphy wrote. Mm. And this is on page 200 regarding the sagittal crest. When jaw muscles become too large to find sufficient attachment on the side of the brain case, a sagittal crest develops. That size threshold is regularly crossed by all male gorillas and a few females, by most male orangutans, and by no other known primates. The evident size of the Sasquatch easily puts their females well over that threshold, and a sagittal crest would be an automatic development. The evident size of the Sasquatch easily puts their females well over that threshold, and a sagittal crest would be an automatic development. Yes. Once again, as body size increases, brain size
1: increases at a slower rate than does the jaw. So what he's saying, though, that's not specific to the sexes of the male or female primate
2: here. It's just about size. Right. So that's a direct rebuttal for all those people that say, well, how can it be a lady? It's got a man head. That's <laughs> and so, the, answer, the answer to why that's not an accurate right. assessment.
1: Well, in relation to that, yeah. uh, regarding the breasts, quote, that the species should have enlarged breasts at all, which is a human trait, is also a point of contention to some critics, but that they would be hair covered in a temperate climate seems perfectly reasonable to me. So he's saying, I don't see what the problem is. Most of these apes that they're comparing them to live in hot humid climates, usually have less hair. If you're in a colder climate like Patty, out in the woods, and it gets cold up there and snowy, why not have more fur? As we promised, you will be an expert in Bigfoot boobs by the end of this series. <laughs> well, I don't know. You may not even want to think about that again, <laughs> but those are some of his responses to the often, mainly three points that scientists bring up about Patty herself looking at her and what they don't like about it. Looking specifically at the biomechanics and the 41-inch stride length displayed by Patty in the film. We've gotten these calculations from the source material, and we're going with them here, but they may be some, there might be some discrepancies later on, so just keep a note of that. But in any case, here, with a 41-inch stride length displayed by Patty, Krantz's conclusion is that the PGF shows a genuine unknown animal. So here's a note I found when you're thinking about average stride length in humans, and this is from the Arizona State University Extension here online. A man's walking stride length is two and a half feet or 30 inches. A woman's average stride length is 2.2 feet or 26.4 inches. And these are from the school's findings. In general, of course, people with longer legs have a greater stride length than those with shorter legs. Well, that's a big old duh. (laughs) Yeah, mobility here factors. Well, the average human knee bend while walking is 70 degrees. But Krantz noticed Patty's knees on average bending more than 90 degrees. This has Patty lifting her foot off the ground with each step by at least 10 inches, toes to dirt, while a human only raises their foot two or three inches off the ground, as was noted by researchers Daniel Perez and Renata Hinden. Yes, yeah, she's a high stepper. <laughs> it's a weird characteristic again, another nice touch by the faker. It's noted that it would be hard for a human to raise the foot off the ground 10 inches or more while walking and still keep as smooth and as long a stride as Patty. Overall, Krantz contends that human foot and leg movement are very different from what you see in the film and not possible by a man wearing a gorilla costume. That was kind of his final statement there. He didn't think it was possible. Again, I'll just say, if it is a fake, weird walk that Bob Hieronymus made up to confound people, it's ingenious. (laughs) Well, Krantz also noted the creature's apparent massive shoulders, estimating the width at just over 28 inches making them a little over 35% of the standing height, he calculated at 78 inches, or about 6 foot 6 inches tall. So if you think about it, uh, that's not the width across the chest. They're talking about over 28 inches, or at least Grover Krantz is talking about a shoulder width of 28 inches while you were looking directly at the shoulder. A little over two
2: feet wide, right? This Picture is that where, in your mind. The rock—that's what I'm thinking of.
1: Well, no, this is bigger than the no. But <laughs> I'm saying you are looking,
2: looking at that arm with that big tattoo. That's the part we're not yeah, looking oh, at yeah, the sure. back. We're no. looking at the side here, right? Because yeah. of course that would be accounting for chest width too. So
1: it's not broad shoulders as we commonly think about it. It's the actual width of the shoulders straight on here. Now, Bob Piranhas, you know, he had wide shoulders but he had a ratio of 27.4% ratio to standing height. And here's a fun comparison that's also in the wiki entry there. You talk about big guys. Andre the Giant had a typical human ratio of 24%. And very rarely do humans have a shoulder ratio of 30%. So Bob Hieronymus, he did have a wide shoulder ratio there to compare to standing height, but Patty's was 35%. So think about that. Andre the Giant, 24%. Patty,
2: 35%. She could have wadded
1: him up into a little piece of tinfoil. By the
2: way, the Rock's biceps, I just looked it up, 19 (laughs) inches at (laughs) his biceps, which isn't all the way up, even up at the shoulder, which is smaller.
1: Right. That's the circumference too, I think. Yes. So again, rarely do humans have a shoulder ratio of 30%. This would make Patty's shoulder to height ratio 50% wider than the average human. Krantz would contend that you couldn't have the natural looking arm and hand movements you see in the film while wearing a
2: suit with that much bulked up shoulders to match what you see Patty sporting. I'd like to make a point that I haven't seen mm-hmm. in any of our notes. So I think I'm making a fresh point. That no, you I, have, to I tell certainly hope it's going to be like, we're getting to it later, but here it is with regard to Hieronymus and the football shoulder pads. It occurs to me that if you're wearing those and you're in a costume that they yeah. isolate the movement between the tops of your shoulders mm-hmm. and your arms in yes. an unnatural way. Yeah. Just like when you look at a football player on a football field, right. you can see that there's not a direct relationship between how the tops of their shoulders are moving and their arms, and you would see the same thing if Bob Hieronymus was in a costume wearing shoulder pads, yeah. I would believe, in the patty footage.
1: They don't move as much with you. So yeah. that's kind of the point that some of these proponents are saying that the movement they see with clearly delineated muscle groups moving is very fluid. It's not stiff and jerky. It's not arms dangling underneath a contraption. Whereas, you know, football shoulder pads, they're connected under the armpits and tied off at the neck. And of course, they're a lot more stationary. They do move with you, but your arms move a lot more fluid. So what you see with Patty is you have deltoids and triceps and biceps moving with her, plus hand and finger movement that's curling up as she's walking. So very sophisticated. Well, now let's hear from two anthropologists who I think have done a, a pretty good job of studying the film and the walk, and they provide not so much a counterpoint to Grover Krantz's studies because I think that they thought his methodology was, was fine. I think their main problem with his take on it is that he was so confident in his final conclusion that the walk scene in the film could not possibly be done by a human. So they went out to see
2: if that was true themselves. So David J. Daigling is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Florida and a biological anthropologist specializing in the study of primate anatomy and biomechanics. Daigling and his anthropologist associate Daniel O. Schmidt from Duke University examined the film and conducted their own studies of the creature's walking characteristics, comparing them to their own human experiments. Now, Daigling's book, which we've already mentioned in this series, Mm -hmm. uh, came out in 2004. It's called Bigfoot Exposed, An Anthropologist Examines America's Enduring Legend. He had also taken a look at Grover Krantz's data and calculations, stating that Krantz's endorsement of the film was the first to do so by a systematic dissection of it, some 25 years after the incident. Dagling then summarizes his thoughts about Krantz's two specific arguments for the film's authenticity. First, that the creature's body proportions are outside the range of human populations and could not be achieved by a human wearing a costume. Secondly, that the gait of the creature is sufficiently distinct from that of living humans enough so that a person couldn't duplicate the film subject's movements. Krantz used Bob Titmus's measurements from the site, which are questionable, in calculating his height estimates. Dagling states that Grover Krantz's calculation for her walking height, keeping in mind that she's sort of hunched over when she's walking. Yeah, she's got that ape-like thing she's kind of hunched over, big, huge trapezius. Right. What Krantz had said was that when she's doing that, her height is about six feet, but that if she was stopped and standing straight up, it would be closer to six foot six, Mm -hmm. well within human proportions. However, this conflicts with Chris Murphy stating of Krantz's standing height measurement of 7.3 feet. Yeah, that's what we found in the book. I saw that Chris Murphy stated
1: Kranz's statement of 7.3 feet as a standing height. Now, keep in mind, that that's if Patty stopped and unnaturally to her stood straight up, you know, ramrod straight, she might reach 7.3 feet. So there's some discrepancy there, which probably the average listener out here doesn't care about.
2: Right, if her mom was trying to <laughs> right. get her to stand up against the wall to oh, put a the, pencil over her yes, head, at see the how kitchen, tall she was. <laughs> the the doorframe of the kitchen, yes.
1: <laughs> but Krantz calculated that with that given height, and according to Daigling, he calculated a chest size of over 18 inches with Krantz stating, quote, I can confidently state that no man of such stature is built that broadly, end quote.
2: All right. This is from pages 124 and 125 of Daigling's book, mm-hmm. Bigfoot Exposed, that we just mentioned. It was a slow afternoon in New Haven when I decided, for lack of anything better to do, that I would verify this claim. And this is the claim that we were just referring to. Mm-hmm. I headed off to Yale's Science Library and began searching various databases. Having found what I wanted, I spent a few minutes in the stacks tracking down the Anthropometry Sourcebook, a thick book containing a comprehensive assortment of measurements on the human body from a number of populations. Pulling the large volume off the shelf, I found statistics on height and measurement called the intersci. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. That's I-N-T-E-R-S-C-Y-E. I'll go with that. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is an armpit to armpit measurement and gives you an idea of how wide an individual's chest is. Conveniently, this measurement is taken across the back in the same way that Krantz was compelled to measure it On the film, since the subject was heading away from the camera. Mm -hmm. For this variable, I had before me a set of data on over 1,000 individuals. Not a very big sample compared to all the people running around, but big enough to establish how bizarrely Patty was shaped. I'd like to interject here. Mm. I like the way Daigling writes. He's he's (laughs) well-educated and he's taking a very formal approach yeah. to all this, but he's also very casual. And yeah, it's, it's readable. It's a good book to read. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was astonished in pouring over the tables, but not because it was dawning on me that a flesh and blood Bigfoot had been caught on film, Instead, I was dumbfounded that Krantz, who was a respected scientist at a major research university, could have been so sloppy in making such a bold claim. If no human existed of the dimensions Krantz gives, then about 5% of members of the German Air Force were in need of zoological reclassification.
1: Well, they were all the big guys, remember? The big ball guys yes. in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. uh, who
2: have the, the fist fight. Who with got Indy. back into the prop. Yes, yes. that guy. The impossible, he's got that in quotes, dimensions of the film subject were anything but. The numbers were clear. If that was a Sasquatch, then it had the body proportions that can be found in people walking around today. I left the library considerably annoyed, and I became deeply skeptical of the remainder of Krantz's argument.
1: Yeah, well, there you go. Like we said uh, before starting this little section here is that he had a problem with the end claims, we could say. So Uh, A little bit of professional disagreement and maybe a good counterpoint to what Krantz is saying is that he's maybe recklessly making these declarations. But also we don't know what data he's pulling from Krantz. He details it quite a bit in his book. So
2: if you're that interested, you can go check it out. Yeah. Compare the two. What's interesting about Krantz is when he came into this, he was a non-believer. Then he became a believer. And so then if you're looking at the confirmation bias and how that might've influenced his results, and this happens to everybody, Mm -hmm. once you get to wherever your own mind is, it can start to taint your results. But on the other hand, Krantz has passed away and we don't have the ability to ask him or have him defend why his suppositions were correct and Daigling's are wrong because yeah. he's not around anymore. Yeah. Those two guys need to hash that out. Yeah. Well,
1: the other thing that Daigling and Schmidt looked at was the gait, the walking speeds. That's the other thing we can glean from the film to analyze. And regarding the walking speeds and gait, Rene DeHinden had people at the film site try and keep up with Patty's pace and found that if the film had been shot at 24 frames per second they could not keep up with their pace. At slower film speeds, they could keep up. And Dagling found that when he duplicated the test with his students, he found the same thing. Daniel Schmidt found, though, that if you do a primate's compliant gait type of walk, or how Croucho Marx would have jokingly walked around while doing a bit,
2: you could achieve a faster gait. Yeah, this is, if you haven't seen the Groucho Marx walk, this is also a walk that looks a little bit like cross-country skiing.
1: (laughs) It's bending the knee quite dramatically, like 90 degrees, putting your leg far out forward and being lowered to the ground and doing a kind of a crazy walk. But even
2: Groucho Marx didn't step super high like Patty does.
1: Yeah, he's a much shorter man. So he's walking at that crazy uh, gait. And I'm also thinking of Monty Python's, uh, was the Institute of Silly the Walks? The Ministry. Minist- Sorry, walks, yes. it is British, so it is Ministry of, yes. s- of Silly Walks, of just doing something goofy. So that's kind of like what they're describing there as that primate compliant gait. Now, the problem is, is that when a human walks with knees and hips bent like that, you can travel faster, but you also tire out more quickly. So Daigling and Schmidt found that their human test subjects could walk faster than Panty was in the film when they were doing the compliant gait. Now, Scott here is going to give us all a brief description of a compliant gait from the BFRO website, the Bigfoot
2: Field Researchers Organization. Most Sasquatches are observed walking, and the observer almost invariably comments on their smooth, long, and fluent stride like cross-country skiing or like riding a bicycle with wide arm swings. This effect is produced by their so-called compliant gait, meaning that they do not lock their knees during a step but keep them bent and thereby suppress the up-and-down oscillations of the body that is so characteristic of the human gait. Part of the Sasquatch gait is a high foot rise and back during the swing phase and a longer bipedal contact with the ground. Step length averages 5 feet, an interval that is uncomfortable or impossible to duplicate or sustain for any distance by a would-be hoaxer. The gait has very little straddle, meaning the feet are put in line.
1: What I noticed in looking for a good short definition of a compliant gait that wasn't a bunch of scientific gobbledygook was that this also seems to be in debate amongst, I think, primatologists and anthropologists and people who study mobility, and that there was a paper I found which said, hold on now, this may not be a real thing, and gave a Long argument and about compliant gait, yeah, just being such a defined characteristic with primates, gorillas will walk a short distance, and we've seen other monkeys and lower primates walk like that, but they're debating is this a natural outcome for walking primates in general? I would
2: like to make an armchair ah. anthropological observation <laughs> please right do now that actually occurred to me the other day, and I forgot about it, and I think this is as good a point as any to bring it up when You're doing a compliant gait or you're doing that silly walk, the Groucho Marx walk. And sometimes I do this walk. Here's when I do this walk. Mm. When I'm in the mall with my son Mm -hmm. and I want to walk really quickly away from him in kind of a funny way. (laughs) And make him laugh. Yeah. Yeah, And make him laugh. I'll bend my legs down and walk like that. And I do cover more ground quickly. Yeah. But the other thing that I can do is that thing that you see certain birds do Mm -hmm. where you can essentially stabilize your head. You can make it very, very smooth yeah. when you're walking this way. Right. It's very different from how you bounce up and down or your head does. And therefore your primary sensory input between your eyes and your, um, well, let's just say your eyes, because mm. your eyes are bouncing around when you're walking the way you normally do. So this is what's interesting to me about this, because I used to, when I was younger, I was real fascinated with birds. And I would read about the birds because you see these birds, like the reason that a, a pigeon does that walk like an Egyptian does. Yes or other birds are capable of holding their heads perfectly still. You see all these videos of the baby owl holding its head perfectly still while you move its body all around. Mm -hmm. That is done so that it can be a better predator. And process its surroundings better. So it has developed or evolved this series of muscles and a behavioral pattern mm-hmm. that allows it to better assess what's going on in its environment. They can hold a target better, you're saying? Yeah, and just in vision? general, there. Yeah. yeah, because what they're doing is they are their own personal image stabilization. Ah, it's I see. built into them biologically, there you go. biomechanically. It's interesting to me to think of the idea that if Patty is a real creature, that she may have developed this compliant gait as a defense mechanism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because in walking that way she is able to look around almost like the terminator she has an <laughs> uh, she has a stabilized point of view and her, the information that's being fed into her brain right. is being stabilized by her head because of that weird walk. And maybe that's a reason that you would evolve to that weird walk in the wild. It's a self-defense mechanism. Well there are some evolutionary on, arguments. Don't I get like I mean that was like yeah, pretty a guitar good. solo. Come you didn't on. you
1: didn't talk about give me something. <laughs> well I came me, up with that. Tell just me more now. about chickens and pigeons though, because it's, <laughs> well, it's no, more of I a Nick Jagger. Jagger was, funky. Yeah, I always thought yeah. it was
2: hilarious why the pigeons and birds did that. And I looked right. it up. It has to do because their eyes are on the sides of their heads, yes, has to do with how their visual cortex works with their brain and they process information. Okay. Now, Patty's eyes obviously aren't on the side of her head, but that stabilization thing does kind of offer an advantage over uneven terrain if you're in an environment where you want to be more aware of your surroundings. Very good. Yeah, you you do hit on another thing that
1: I've been thinking about, and I'm going to try to remember to talk about it in our conclusions, though, is that you are trying to compare what you see on the film there, Patty, With known morphologies of humans and apes. Did you just call me Patty? Yeah, I'll go. (laughs) Let's go with that. That's all we have. That's the data sets we do have. We've studied apes and higher primates for a long time. We've studied humans. We have databases for them. And so you're seeing something that's not one or the other. It's somewhere in between. So yeah what characteristics would fall on that needle from one side to the other? And that's what's interesting here. And I think that's what's baffling. We'll talk a little bit about your note here on Dagling commenting on Bob Titmuss's initial field, uh, his calculations, because I believe what
2: Dagling is saying here is that those are probably error-filled, or at least have well, a few errors. Well, there's some of that. This section that I wanted to mention is actually more specifically related to the tracks. And Bob was a tracker. Mm-hmm. And so Dagling made some observations about Bob Titmuss and the tracking information associated with the PGF site in Bluff Creek. Mm-hmm. This is quoting from page 170 of Dagling's book. Bob Titmuss, who may have seen more tracks in his life than any other investigator, was clear in his conviction that no claim to authenticity could be made for a single print, regardless of context or documentation. This is an admirably skeptical position from someone who claims to have actually seen a Bigfoot on two occasions. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say, Bob Titmus was impressed. Nothing whatever here indicated that these tracks could have been faked. On the other hand, Richard Henry, and that's another investigator, expressed, quote, mixed emotions about the event recorded by the track since he stated that quote I could not find where they started and the sequence of footprints looked symmetrical and mechanical and Lyle Laverty who we apparently have a oh someone by marriage related to this gentleman. Mm-hmm. He may have been the first person to see the tracks after Patterson and Gimlin had departed. He worked in the park system there. He was intrigued enough to take some pictures of the strange footprints, but he too has expressed some skepticism based on the proximity of the film site to a road and on his own experience in the months preceding the film. He had heard the tales of disturbances on Wallace's, he's talking about Ray Wallace, who was the track hoaxer, on Wallace's operation, but he had never seen any tracks at all that he couldn't explain until Patterson and Gimlin had come and gone. So anyway, it's just interesting. this is just a little bit of this more skeptical side, but again, it's actually both sides, and that's what I like about how Daigling wrote the book because mm-hmm. first, he's talking about how Bob Titmus seen a lot of tracks, and he said, "I can't say that this is a hoax, but on mm-hmm. the other hand, uh, he's saying Laverty, well, I don't know. I've heard about Ray Wallace, and I never saw any tracks in the area that were weird until Patterson and Gimlin came and went. Mm-hmm. however. That logic is a little bit of failed logic for me. It's like, yeah, well, they saw Bigfoot. It's a Bigfoot. Because you can say that either means, yeah, well, they hoaxed a Bigfoot. So now you're seeing tracks. Or it's because they saw a Bigfoot and that Bigfoot left tracks on that day. So yeah, yeah they happen to be there at the same time. Whatever. But anyway, again, yeah. I know we have a lot of listeners that lean to the more skeptical side mm-hmm. and we've got a lot of books that we've read or read um, at least parts of. It was hard to read them all because we yes. got like 10 on this one. But if you're wanting to take the broader look at the big picture, I would look at Daigling's Bigfoot Exposed book, which is not just about the PGF. It's about Bigfoot in general. So yeah, right, right. But it's something to check out. I think we though
1: can definitively conclude though that the reasons the tracks just appear with no origin
2: spot is because they're interdimensional. Oh come on! Don't go there right no, I'm now. Not. I'm just, I'm no. just joking. That's, but, that's the other reason yeah. that the speed's weird because Patty's not fully in our dimension. <laughs> wow, well, the time you know I, is different I, I where not, she's actually. I did not even think of that. She's projecting. She's doing yeah. a Luke Skywalker thing. Well, good
1: for you, man. I didn't. Uh, with I did not even bring in the Skinwalker Ranch aspect of this. That's yeah. just a, she's probably too deep. Who knows? But she comes no, here the, for the Snickers bars. <laughs> the idea is that <laughs> you don't bring that up with these scientists. They they will have none of it. And the ones that are serious about studying this hate it because it just cheapens the brand as you could say well you're making it look cheap well because <laughs> it just <laughs> yeah we don't have any information on that but the people who do believe in that kind of stuff i'm sure they'll latch onto that and just thinking like well there you go well, how did it just disappear into the brush These guys are professional trackers and it got too thick. It's big. It's
2: powerful. It it doesn't feel pain. Bob also broke off because Roger was scared and alone. Right. (laughs) I'm making a joke about Roger, but like he had no gun, no horse, and he was out of film. So, well, no, I I don't blame him. And he wanted to know where the baby was. The baby Bigfoot. Yes. I don't
1: blame him at all. But people will say about the counter though, that it was kind of strange that she did seem to just kind of disappear into the undergrowth. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he stopped. Bob Gimlin stopped, but it wasn't like he saw her barrel a path through, you know, like, like you would see a hippo going through the brush. Yeah. It just seemed to kind of fizzle out. Anyway, that's weird. But let's get back to the things that we know about, about the film here, because of the camera's variable film speed being unknown. Well, that's an unknown thing we don't know about the film, or we do know, I don't know. It's a known known unknown. Exactly. Rumsfeld would say. (laughs) The other thing that's unknown is the actual distance the creature traveled, because that's only an estimate with probable errors. And because of all that, the actual walking speed estimate is imprecise. This is according to Dagling. But even so, and with Patty seeming to use a compliant gait to move faster than normal human walking, Dagling then argues that she wasn't moving all that fast, and that a human could walk faster than she does in the film by also using a compliant gait. So it it does seem she's moving quickly. She's determined. It's a determined walk. But what Dagling is saying here is like, it's not like she's sprinting, or it's impossible to match that. Because according to Daigling, the argument that the creature's body proportions, or Patty's gait and speed, we're not human, doesn't prove the Bigfoot scene in the film is the real deal. And therefore, it's possible the film is still a hoax. So you see, that's the scientific side, is that they're not saying, uh, like we said earlier, coming out and claiming, well, there you go, it's a hoax. They're saying that can't be ruled out, but we can't go either way on this, we just don't have enough good data, therefore you can't make good conclusions. For Dagling, one variable remains that is not easily ascertained from looking at the film, and that is stride length in relation to the compliant gait. Now, as reported by Dagling, the creature's stride, for example, this would be left heel measuring to left heel. One full locomotor cycle was measured at the film site as ranging from 280 to 305 centimeters, or about 110 inches to 120.1 inches.
2: Okay, I want to jump in here real quick. Yeah. Because earlier we were talking about Grover Krantz and we mentioned a 41-inch stride length. That's right. And we actually, we were quoting something there, but it turns out that's a misspeak in a way because there's a difference between a stride length and a step length. And I want to explain this a little bit because obviously there's a huge gap between 41 inches and 110 inches. So which is, it is Bigfoot taking these huge steps or little tiny baby steps. Right,
1: well, no, I wondered that when I came across those two figures because those are jotted down and it's like, well, those differ vastly. So what's who's right? Well, what's happening
2: wrong? here is I think a lot of researchers and people that are, are digging in on this are misusing the term stride. So this is something that we looked up. I actually found this at reference.com slash science slash length average walking stride. That's got hyphens in a long number after mm-hmm. it. So I'm not going to try and give that to you, but I'm just going to read this real quick from there. The length of an average, this is human, obviously not Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the length of an average walking stride is 62 inches. People frequently mistake stride for step length or wrongly assume they are one in the same. That should be one and the same. There's a typo right there. They wrote one in the same. One and the same. Well, maybe they're Canadian. Yeah. (laughs) Step length is described as the distance between the heel strike of one foot and the heel strike of the opposite foot. So that's your step length. right? Like the back of your left heel measured to the back of your right heel. Exactly. And just one step apart. On the other hand, stride refers to the consecutive heel strikes of the same foot. Stride roughly equates to two steps. Mm -hmm. Stride length varies based on the length of a person's legs. Because men tend to be taller than women on average, males typically have longer strides. Overall, a person expends more energy by taking longer strides when walking. Let's unpack this. (laughs) The length of an average walking stride, according to this, is 62 inches. So if you look at that, That would mean that the step length for an average person Mm -hmm. would be 31 inches. Okay. What we're going to say is that even though there was a reference to a 41-inch stride length for the Bigfoot tracks earlier, Mm -hmm. that actually was probably a step length. Yeah, that makes sense. Which would then in turn equate to an 82-inch stride Mm -hmm. length, which is interesting because that's 20 inches longer than a human average stride of 62 inches.
1: Yeah, that's what Daigling goes on to say, that this figure is beyond the ability of normal human walking except for some very tall people. However, when humans employ a compliant gait, a compliant walk, the stride length increases dramatically. So Daigling and Schmidt compared their normal stride lengths with their compliant walking strides and found a 35% increase in the length. 35%, so it, okay, so that's Yeah, when you're doing the goofy walk, when you're doing the yes. groucho walk, that increases by 35%. Okay. So then they measured their compliant stride lengths as ranging from 288 centimeters to 293 centimeters, or 113.4 to 114.5 inches. So to dagling, their compliant stride length could match Patty's, which might be either her normal walking pattern or... A clever affectation by a guy in a suit thinking that they should walk strangely or knew about primate locomotion and compliant gates. Well, you the know, other, you know yeah. what I'm saying there is that like, let's do the goofy Groucho walk or the Ministry of Silly Walks.
2: Well, it seems like a, a strange decision to make if you're wearing a costume, because at that point, I would think if you're staging a hoax. Yeah, you're doing something that's kind of goofy. And I would think that the people who are shooting the hoax, like if Roger Patterson is conducting a hoax and Bob Hieronymus is doing the compliant gate, which is, we're also calling the Groucho Walker. Like the, like, as I said, a few minutes ago, the silly walk that I do with my son sometimes to quickly get away from him in the mall without moving my head at all. Yeah, The interesting thing about that is I feel like Roger would be, what are you doing? That is the goofiest, (laughs) you're ruining it. Well, (laughs) you know, that's like if you were staging this. If I was directing the hoax, I'd be like, "Why are you walking like that?" Right. Again,
1: the critic would say, "Well, no, they studied up on some primate ape walks and kind of figured that's how that kind of lumbering." Wasn't it? Maybe
2: said he brought you know the gate and all that to Hieronymus, and he just kind of glazed over. Yeah.
1: Then the critics would say, "Well, no, Roger was still acting. He was an excellent actor." Bob. No, wasn't it Bob? No, 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 it it was Roger. That was Roger. Okay. So Roger
2: was pretending to be dumb about primate walks. Yeah. Roger was
1: trying to figure out or keep up with what Grover Kranz was telling him about, you know, as far as eight behavior characters and dimension of walking uh, gates and all that. And, you know, trying to talk to him about that. And he said, well, he just looked like a student who was not really getting it, but trying to keep up doing his best. But, you know, again, that's a human. So like, calculation. like what I look
2: like sitting across from you right now. Exactly.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, that's on the social side. Well, Roger was playing dumb. He really did study up on these primate gates, and, and he either instructed Bob Hieronymus to do it, or Bob Hieronymus knew he should do some kind of lumbering gate like a big fish ape would, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It's a bit of a stretch, but there you go. It's not totally out of reason. Not it's out of out the of realm po- of possibility. It's not out of the realm of possibility, and that's what people like Dagling would say about Crance's conclusion. So in summing up that, you know, to David Dagling's thinking... He didn't have a problem with Kranz's analysis of the film in regards to errors in computation or lapses in reasoning, really Dagling thought it was a laudable effort to get as much information as possible from a poorly documented situation. What Dagling has a problem with is Kranz's conclusions from his analysis, which he thought were, you know, just too reckless, optimistic and confident. Simply put, that since the body proportions were unusual, they weren't human, and since the walk wasn't typical, no human could imitate it. So in Dagling's opinion, both conclusions are indefensible. So you can see where these two scientists' feelings lie in that Kranz is like, well, I don't know, I'm convinced. I've studied it. I wasn't at first, but I've studied it. I think this is the real deal. I'm
2: doubling down on this. And
1: Dagling says, well, how can you do that? Well, he, he Daigling's really,
2: calling know. Krantz on his, what seeming confirmation bias. Krantz has made up his mind. A little bit, yeah, sure. Um, Daigling, on the other hand, may have some confirmation bias in the other direction. Right. Somewhere in the middle of these two is probably the reality of whatever Patty is. Exactly. So I would say, though,
1: that Dagling and Schmidt's conclusions probably fall within a medium, a mean of of most scientists thinking in that, you know, quite simply because of all the shortcomings and probable errors and uncertainties of the available data, it's impossible to definitely conclude that this subject in the film was non-human and that a hoax is still a possibility. That's where they have to keep it. It's like, well, we can't rule out a hoax, where I think Krantz can. And yeah. that's the differing of opinions there. So sure. as Daigling and Schmidt stated in an issue of Skeptical Enquirer, May to June, 1999 issue there titled Bigfoot Screen Test, quote, based on our analysis of gait and problems inherent in estimating subject dimensions, it is our opinion that it is not possible to evaluate the identity of the film subject with any confidence. Hmm. They're just saying, look, this is bad data. We can't, yeah. we can't go there. Some have, we're not going there. So anyway, uh, however, Daegling has stated that if it was a suit, it was better than a lot of the monster costumes you saw in the movies and TV of 1967, because special effects were primitive in that day. However, Bill Munz had a thought about that, didn't he?
2: Yeah. Coming back around to Bill Munz, we actually have an interview with him. That's going to be the next part of this series. It's really fascinating. He is a costume designer and a film analyst who has taken a harder look at the PGF film than probably anyone in history with the most modern technology. But one of the things that he mentioned in his own book, which is called When Roger Met Patty, that you'll be hearing about more in the next part of the series is this comes from page 95 of 492 in the, I'm referring to the Kindle edition here. I'm just going to read this right out of the book. One thing that should be cleared up is the error that the ape makeups and suits of these films were not, quote, the technology of the time, end quote, that the PGF was filmed. In David Daigling's book, this is Munn speaking now, Bigfoot Exposed, Daigling writes, On page 112, it is very important to remember the date of the film. In 1967, we were still a few years away from Planet of the Apes and 2001 Space Odyssey. Ape and monster costumes were not very sophisticated and apparently hard to come by. Munz goes on here to say, "Dagling is incorrect. Planet of the Apes was released on February 8th, 1968, a mere three and a half months after the PGF was filmed on October 20th, 1967. And Planet of the Apes was filmed from May 21, 1967 to August 10, 1967, before the PGF was taken. The makeup designs and tests would have been done even earlier in 1967. 2001 Space Odyssey was released on April 2, 1968, a mere five and a half months after the PGF filming. And principal photography, that's when you start the official shoot, began December 1965 and was completed in September 1967, before the PGF was taken. And the ape suits would have been developed and fabricated well before they could be filmed. So in both cases, the ape costumes and effects of both films can be considered the technology of the time. But how that technology actually compares with the PGF is a matter often misunderstood by people who are not knowledgeable in the actual process and techniques of, quote, creature work. I don't want to go too far down the Munn's rabbit hole here, Mm. but I'm just going to read this last paragraph and then just know that you'll be hearing more about him in the next part of this series. Mm -hmm. And this is from page 96 now of his book. The work done for Planet of the Apes actually has little resemblance to what we see in the PGF. The Planet of the Apes apes were done with facial prosthetic appliances glued to the actor's face, blended and then painted to finish, and lace front wigs were then applied to finish the look. The actors wore full costumes of cloth or leather to appear dressed in armor, garments, or similar civilized fashions. The PGF creature is a full and apparently naked body of something humanistic in anatomy, but covered almost entirely by a hair or fur as humans normally are not. If it is a hoax, the technique for making a full body costume is far different from the techniques of Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah, we're going to hear about the guy
1: who worked on that groundbreaking makeup for Planet of the Apes and won an honorary Academy Award for his work years before they started handing out a category for Oscars for best makeup effects. So it's a little different. So keep that in mind. That's what he's saying. Munz is that, you know, and and what's funny is that he's the expert in that field, not Daigley.
2: And I also want to point out that that gentleman that you're going to be talking about, his budget for Planet of the Apes, yeah. $1 million, $1967. A lot of money back then. So I don't think Roger and Bob had access to that kind of money to create the costume (laughs) that they did, but more on that later.
1: And a much different type of costume is what Munz is pointing out. So it's just funny to see
2: experts in their field chiming in like, well, not exactly. Well, and this this is what I think demonstrates Munn's even handedness is what he's pointing out here is that because Dayling was trying to say that this was actually before Planet of the Apes and 2001, Mm -hmm. Munn's is actually saying, no, it's right at the right time. That was all the right time. But then he goes on to say, although those costumes look absolutely nothing like Patty, that's just what to consider. So he's given us the full picture there. Yeah, exactly. So, well,
1: here are my concluding thoughts on just this interchange here between Krantz and Dagling, or just what's been mentioned so far, and you tell me if any of this makes sense or if you have some thoughts on this, one, if the body proportions exist in a small percentage of the human population, then you really have to look at, does the person who's come forward, the one person who's come forward, claiming to be the man in the suit, Bob Hieronymus, match those proportions, either wearing a skin-tight suit or one with highly sophisticated panning? You're looking at a broad swath of logic, and really it comes down to something that Chris Murphy said that we started this section with, is that there is possibility in that if you look at possibility, it's like, well, it can be achieved in humans, this is not impossible, these body proportions, or the walking gait, the compliant gait, but then you have to look at, is it probable? So when we look at the probability factor for the PGF, well, you have one guy who's come forward claiming it was a hoax, it was him, it's me, it's Bob Hieronymus, I did this. Well, does Bob match those proportions or could he in a sophisticated suit? And to get to that proportion, how sophisticated does it have to be? Is it beyond the probability of that being possible? So that's one thing I wanted to make sure that we thought of here, all of us, when we're considering if this is a hoax. Another thing here is, None of the calculations can be totally accurate, including Daiglings and Schmidt's. I think in a locked-down scientific manner, and they would agree with this, I'm sure, because you're not actually measuring Bob Herodimus, the guy who's claiming to be the ape in the film, and his walk, although I guess you, you could have measured perhaps the recreation walk he did for Greg Long, but that didn't happen. You know what I'm saying? You've you got the physical guy there.
2: Yeah, and Greg Long wouldn't even release that picture to for Munns to use in his book. He yeah, wouldn't give Munns the one right. picture. And it's just a picture of Hieronymus walking in front of a fence. No, like he, a would, he, spray. <laughs> right, he
1: wouldn't give that to Chris Murphy either, I think, because it doesn't really hold up. Yeah. It's not that accurate. And I think he was afraid that's being going to be pointed out. But that's what I'm saying, is that you don't have the actual people objects here including patty herself to measure against bob you know what i'm saying to get a real scientific lockdown on this data wise you know daigling and schmidt tested out their normal walk against their own compliant gait, and you can make some reasonable extrapolations from that but they can't accurately measure the compliant gait of the subject in the film if bigfoot is a new type of primate species we're totally unaware of is it sufficient to compare it to and expect satisfactory matches? with the physical properties of apes or of humans because Bigfoot, it seems, has its own morphology, different from both higher primates. You know what I'm saying? She's her own thing. Yeah. So is it- We yeah. need to compare apples to apples. Exactly. And right? we can't, because <laughs> she's the only apple. <laughs> right. Not comparing an orange to a tangelo or yes. some, you know, some kind of weird hybrid, because she's somewhere in between. That's what it seems to be the case here. So to get it accurate and to measure her, you really need her. Yeah. And she's not cooperating. So, you know, if it's possible for a human to exhibit those body proportions and compliant gait- Does Hieronymus have or could have those characteristics? That's what I'm saying. And if it's not Hieronymus, then what guy in the suit did? So essentially, it's all inconclusive to me, and we'll never know. But keep in mind here, even if we can't consider hard data, we can still consider probabilities. So if Bob Hieronymus couldn't fit the body proportions, was there someone still unknown to us that Roger was able to get to wear his sophisticated costume? We don't know. Would Roger or the suit wearer then be clever enough or knowledgeable enough to do the compliant gate? So those are the questions I have after reviewing the arguments here that we we just discussed.
2: I think with regard to Bob, if the costume does not fit, you must... Acqu- no. <laughs> oh, I, uh, please. No, uh, no but what, here's what I'm saying. Just- it doesn't work... And then, if someone else is wearing a costume, where is that person? That person has kept That's a secret for 50 plus yeah. years, which nobody does in the case of a hoax this big. People just don't do it. The only other possibility would be that the person, like Roger, passed away fairly shortly after that.
1: Yeah, and, it could be. You know,
2: kept it a secret, lived in a Kaczynski ass cabin somewhere, big and big no one's layer. found the costume right. and got away with it. Right. Because. To me, Bob just doesn't work, frankly. Hieronymus does not work here as a person wearing this costume. And for me also, the Philip Morris story doesn't add up. I do believe there's a possibility of an additional costume, mm-hmm. but I, having looked at the ones that the Morris company made, which are awesome costumes, I'd love yeah. to have oh, yeah. one. <laughs>
1: yeah, they are. But yeah. they
2: don't look anything like Patty. Right. are right, and right. they've not put one forth that looks like Patty, and any recreation that's been created not just by them but by anyone looks nothing like the Patterson-Gimlin film. No one has been able to reproduce it. Yeah. And this all this stuff runs into a dead end for me. I just put up a blog posting as you'll see in our links here, which
1: does show a photo of Philip Morris with a uh, he's a juggler in yeah, a he's blogger. Got that yeah, and he, he does have he does have an ape costume with him. So people could say, Well, there you go, he's holding the ape costume because it, this ape costume Weirdly, has breasts on it. It seems that were clearly put on Later, after the fact. Yeah, yeah, but it's also like a lot of other ape costumes. The belly is, is a big plastic, big belly. and it's yeah. bare. It's totally bare. And as Patty turns, that does not seem to be the case. So that doesn't match. But it is credited somewhat as being similar to the one sold, or a recreation, or a simulation of the one sold to Patterson. And I will say the face looks closer. Because it has a bit of a sagittal crest and the, and the cheeks and the nose are bare. Yeah. I don't seem to have any hair on them. So it looks different than what you would see in a normal gorilla face mask headpiece. Yes. Maybe patterned more after what was seen in the film, possibly. But the rest of it just, eh, it's not quite there. So that's the closest we'll ever see. But again, it wasn't offered to to be studied. It's just like, well, here's something that's similar and not put up. So yeah, there are pictures of him with something that was, I guess he's claiming, uh, Mr. Morris, before he passed away, that is closer to what Roger would have had, but not the same one again, because the one that he claims that he sold to Roger did not have breasts on it, that Roger modified the suit possibly after he received it. And Philip Morris says that he, uh, he was asked that by Roger, how to make the arms longer, this and that. So the suit that he's showing is not exactly what he is saying that he sold to Roger back in the day.
2: Yeah, and I, I wanted to add, because one of our listeners, a friend of ours, had asked just today if we ever heard back from Philip Morris's family right. about doing an interview— because we did talk to them, we did exchange a few emails with them, but we have not heard back. And I, at this point, I don't think we're going to. We did try to reach out to them, just wanted to let everybody know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was totally uh, amicable email exchange. It just, yeah. The interview just didn't materialize. They're probably just really tired of talking about it by now. Yes, as um, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this tire, is tired tire of, of, of listening about it, it
1: by now. <laughs> well, then let's move on to another major proponent of the PGF and Sasquatch in general, and that would be Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum. He is a biological anthropologist, anatomist, and professor at Idaho State University, specializing in vertebrate locomotion and foot morphology in primates. So there you go. This is exactly the type of guy you want to talk to. But of course, because of his willingness to even look at the subject and be in favor of the possibility of Sasquatches, he's dismissed outright by by many. But his credentials are there. So he's he's authored many papers on evolutionary morphology and the emergence of bipedal locomotion in modern humans and Bigfoot, and is one of the more well-known expert proponents of Bigfoot and the Patterson-Gimlin film. And therefore, of course, he's received a lot of criticism from his scientific peers in the community and the public as well. Well, however, there was a nice comment from Brian Dunning on Meldrum's wiki entry And this is what Brian Dunning wrote about him, quote, the work of responsible scientists like Dr. Meldrum is exactly what true skeptics should be asking the Bigfoot community for not criticizing him for it.
2: Yes. And for those of you who don't know, we've mentioned uh, Mr. Dunning several times on the show. He is the guy behind Skeptoid. He's a prominent skeptic who has touched on everything we've ever touched on. I think most of it, sure. Yeah, on most of it or whatever. Uh, And we have respect for him. But it's interesting to hear him saying that about Meldrum.
1: I would say Mr. Dunning is, is pretty even in a lot of stuff. We don't always see eye to eye, of course. But what he's saying is like, if you're going to ask the Bigfoot community to get some real science behind it, this is the guy to be asking. So stop criticizing them for getting this guy involved. That's what you should be looking at.
2: Right. So I, I applaud that. Yeah. I do as well. All right. So getting back to Meldrum, one of his arguments on the creature in the film being real is the focus on what anthropologists call the intermembral index, or IM. I know that many of you will know that as an instant message, but in this case, (laughs) it's something else. Yes. The intermembral index is a ratio used to compare limb proportions expressed as a percentage. The formula is calculated in this case by adding the length of the arms divided by the length of the legs and multiplied by 100. Meldrum cites that the average IM index in humans is 72. An IM index of 117, on average for gorillas, and an average IM index of 106 for chimps. Mm-hmm. That's humans 72, gorillas mm-hmm. 117, yep. chimps 106. And studying the film, Meldrum calculates that Patty has an IM index somewhere between 80 and 90, putting her in the middle between humans and African apes. Aha, see, I knew she was somewhere in the middle. Patty in the middle. Uh-huh. Even though this measurement is not all that precise because you're only looking at her in a film clip, Meldrum firmly states that anyone can see just by looking at the film that you can tell the creature in it has disproportionately long arms in comparison to its stature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll buy that. Therefore, the IM of this creature indicates that it is well beyond the mean for humans and effectively rules out the possibility that it's just a man in a costume. Unless... Incorporated into the costume was some sort of elaborate, if not inconceivable, complex prosthetic mechanism that could produce the actions and positions you see of the wrist, elbow, and finger flexion in the film. Quote, this point deserves further examination and may well rule out the probability of hoaxing. End quote. Meldrum says in his 2015 BFRO article, that's the Bigfoot Field Research Organization. The article is called quote, "The Truth Before Our Eyes." Mm-hmm. End quote. Now, Meldrum cites the fieldwork of John Green and his studies, as well as the analytical calculations of other researchers, like computer animated effects expert Ruben Steindorf. Steindorf used an interesting technique called reverse kinetics to generate a computer model of Patty's skeletal anatomy. He was able to provide a reasonable estimate of Patty's intermembral index by tracking her joints through 116 frames of the film which gave an unusual ratio of limb proportion in that the upper extremity was rather long compared to the lower. Yeah, she's got real long arms and shorter legs. From Steindorf's computer model, the IM for patty is approximately 88. For an average human, as we said, the IM is 71 or 72. This, combined with the exceptional breadth dimensions, has Meldrum concluding that it's an effective argument against the suggestion that Patty is an average man in a costume, even if he was wearing shoulder pads or using arm extensions in the suit.
1: That's another weird thing. So what they're saying is that remember we talked about Bob Haradamas saying he was wearing gloves that were just a little longer than his actual hands. Right. Philip Morris said that Roger asked him how he could make the arms he longer. Said to hold sticks. Sticks. Yeah, just put sticks to extend them in there. But which but, makes it hard to move the fingers. <laughs> well, that's one thing you can see. And again, even you and I were when we were first reading these after years after seeing the PGF, I mean, really looking at it we can't really see this stuff, but I recommend everybody taking a very close look then at a good uh, clip of Patty. And when you really start to look at it, not just kind of casually, you do see the fingers curling up as she does her backswing of the arms. I do see a prominent calf muscle and you can see the, the legs flexing. And again, if that is a suit, Because uh, we can't really say, we certainly have our strong ideas about it, but you you do start to see muscle movement and flexion in the fingers and elbows and and the shoulders moving. And like, you know, like I said before, uh, deltoids and triceps and the muscle groups where they should be. So that is what Jeffrey Meldrum is saying, is that you would have to have some kind of contraption that mimicked all that. And it seems, again, in this case, unlikely so that is what meldrum is saying is that when you take this calculation of the intermembral index it's strange she is a strange unto herself creature that long arms, shorter legs. Remember, we we thought that Bob Hieronymus had longer legs than Patty as yeah. far as like hip His socket. legs were very long. You look yeah. at the
2: pictures and, and specifically from between the knee and the foot.
1: Right, right. So that alone, if people line that up in a film frame of comparable size, those joints don't line up with Patty. So you, yeah, because yeah. she
2: has a really long torso and the long arms. Right. In a primate kind of way. Yeah, shortish legs. And as right. we have said earlier in this series... You can't fake where your joints are. Right. Just It's not something you can do. I don't care what kind of costume you're wearing. Your knee is where your knee is. You can't choose <laughs> yeah. to move it a few inches. Yeah. You can make them longer, but you can't make them shorter. Yeah. Hi, I'm Rachel Stokes, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Okay. Time for another expert. It's time to talk about Esteban Sarmiento. I love his name. Uh, it's a Esteban.
1: fantastic sounding name. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but of course, we have another scientist disagreeing with another scientist. That's yes. That's part of the pastime. That's just part of the contract you yes. signed. You're going to We've disagree. We've all got to
2: disagree with each other.
1: <laughs> well, there are groups that agree with each other, although not totally. They may have some differences in in practice or approach on something or conclusions, but... Generally, they all accept the same methodology to a large degree, so at least you have a starting point. But with Dr. Sarmiento, he does disagree with Meldrum's conclusions about the creatures I am. And Esteban Sarmiento is a primatologist and
2: biological anthropologist, and you may have seen them on Monster Quest. I don't yeah. know if you watched them have you? I well, I'm sure i I've watched all of those. It's been a while now, obviously, they've been gone for a while, but
1: oh yeah, yeah. see yeah. again, i'm I'm uh, just totally lost. my in that one of my
2: favorite Bigfoot stories of all time was the Monster Quest episode, but well, that was the one where they went to the hunting cabin that you could only get to by seaplane. Ah, and someone was throwing right. rocks at the yes. cabin on the yeah. last night they were like we don't see anything we didn't see anything and they're right. going to leave and then something pelted went crazy on the cabin yeah and they got so scared they just went inside
1: <laughs> well, there no that's
2: a common Get out there uh, story. and film it well <laughs> two
1: trail cams <laughs> yeah something i learned from the bigfoot's blog website that's run by steven stroyford i think i'm pronouncing his name correctly steven stroyford he runs the bigfoot books in willow creek and it's a staging center it's a headquarters almost for that area yeah for (laughs) those researchers who do that a lot of field stuff and they were saying that they've set up trail cams like a bunch of them yeah uh, a lot in the actual area and are going to monitor them for the years to come just to see anything happens they've captured a lot of really cool wildlife in there: cougars bear, all kinds of animals in there, but not a Bigfoot yet, but they're ready. So they're actively in the area. In that Bluff Creek area, there, where Roger and Bob were on horseback, and they were part of the group there that rediscovered that site in 2011, I believe, and mapped it out with GPS coordinates. So we have that link on our website for the shows. Yeah, they did a lot of mapping.
2: There's yeah. coordinates and the drawings of every downed tree. It's really awesome. Well, it's really cool. Stuff. I
1: think that they know that to avoid a lot of criticism, you're going to have to be as scientific and accurate and thorough as possible. And that's what they've done. They've mapped out every uh, every tree there that they could find. I think two of the main trees that were there are no longer there. They're gone. But yeah, so they basically found it again. Because of the uh, the overgrowth, it was lost for quite a while there after the incident. And what you can tell is like, it's very dense in there. It's yeah. very rugged and dense. And you'll see that also with Bill Munn's scan composites from the film. He's mapped them and knitted them together so you can see the terrain from the film. Which yes. is really interesting. Well, getting back to Sarmiento, he argues that the IM index of the creature is in the normal human range. And he estimates Bigfoot's weight to be between 190 to 240 pounds. So well within average dudes. Right. So
2: it's just another disagreement about the data here. I think a lot of people in much the same way, they say, oh, they hear about the Philip Morris costume or Bob Hieronymus, and, and they go for that cognitive closure. Oh, well, that explains it. I want to point out that even if you come around to a conclusion that Patty weighs roughly the same as a human being, there's absolutely no relationship between that concept and the idea that she's definitely a human being. Right, right. There is no reason that she could not weigh the same as a person and not be a person. Just wanted to point that out. (laughs) For people that are like, oh, well, 190, it's a person. Yeah. That's not what we're saying. No. All we're saying is that this particular scientist, Mr. Sarmiento, Mm -hmm. believes that her weight is more in the range of someone for example, like me, between, I'm not going to say where I'm at, but between 190 <laughs> yeah. and 240 pounds, I'm working on that, I'm that, on a diet. That
1: seems accurate. Yeah. I'll go with that. But if you go with the story of the tracks as well, the three different sizes of footprints found in the area, and hopefully, you know, one of them is not Ray Wallace's wooden footprints there, that there's three different sizes, that there is a juvenile, a middle range, which might be the female, Patty here, yeah. and then a big old daddy, which yes. must be monstrous. And people have reported around there seeing full grown male Bigfoots. And they are frighteningly huge, scary. Now we're talking, I don't know, maybe eight, nine feet tall and taller. Yeah. Patty might be dainty, but she will still twist you into a pretzel. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't, don't dare approach her too closely or quickly here. But what I do like about Sarmiento is that he is one of the few mainstream scientists that gives cryptozoology any consideration and he thinks it's possible Bigfoot may exist, but that proof of its existence has not yet been established and any evidence found deserves careful study. So there you go. He's open-minded to it. I'll take that. A quote from him about the PGF. If the animal in the PNG film is real, this animal is exceedingly human-like. It would be our closest relative on earth, end quote. If it is real, then what he's saying is it's more close to humans than apes here, but I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it's it's one of our distant, long-lost relatives, perhaps. But in connection to his comparison of panty to other primates in appearance and behavior, Sarmiento sees some inconsistencies, like the color of the palms, which appear dark, as opposed to the soles of the feet, which appear light. And he doesn't know of any other mammal in which this coloring differs so much. But what I would say is to remember the argument about the Philip Morris soles of the costume feet being dark. According to Morris, that's what he said. Remember, the soles of his costume feet were dark. And yet, they appeared light in the film.
2: And that, remember, maybe they were lightened because of the clay in the soil. Right. That's what I was going to point out. The Mm -hmm. clay in the soil, because that, and that's something that Bob Gimlin has said too. Right. The fine silt in the stream bed of Bluff Creek was, had a light color to it. So it's a little bit of a leap, I think, on Sarmiento's part to not calculate that the surfaces that the feet, the bottoms of the feet are being exposed to might be affecting the color of what the bottom of the feet look like, yeah, especially in the stream bed there.
1: Right, right. So keep that in mind. Yeah, that that clay is kind of a light grayish-bluish color. And that is one of the things they said is that that might have been tinting the color of the feet. So yeah, again, it's hard to determine exactly what colors we're seeing there. But another objection is that while Patty has big hairy buns, mm. she doesn't appear to have a significant human-like butt crack or
2: cleft. Wait, is, is that a scientific term, butt crack?
1: I think cleft is, but okay. I I like the term butt crack. You baked there. it right in I, there. I did, yes. I, <laughs> I don't know if it's if it's cleft. People know what we're talking about, hopefully. Yes, so yeah, hopefully. Everybody. Uh, everybody has one. (laughs) Everybody has one. Yeah. Primates, I think you got something like that. And she does, as I can see, but to Sarmiento's liking, he would expect to see more separation. And I would understand this looking at the film is that you do see a line there, but they're not very rounded. And so I can see his thinking being maybe it's a costume and you're seeing a seam there, but it's not like real flesh, you know, where you would see more roundedness and separation. And perhaps it's all that hair that's concealing it, maybe. I really wonder what Sir Mixelot would think. <laughs> he would love it, I think, <laughs> until you got down to ground zero. And then it would be no thank you. Yeah. We're not making a joke here, is that a couple of scientists have seen her hindquarters. Yeah. And it didn't look real to them because they're not seeing enough of that separation that you do which you would see in people or some apes. Yes. So it's unusual. But again, Pandy's her own thing. She's got different morphology, perhaps or it's a costume which got it real close, but not great for them. But in general, Sarmiento concludes that Panty's proportions are well within the human range and quite different from any living ape or astrolopithecine fossils. So while he sees inconsistencies with the creature on the film and what is known about primates, which might point to a hoax, there is nothing conclusive he could spot that proves it's a fake. So again, he's not outright saying it's a fake. It's just he sees some consistencies, he has some disagreements, and that's where he's got to leave it. And actually echoing what Grover Krantz said about opposing scientific studies, there really doesn't seem to be many, if any, detailed scientific debunking point by point of the PGF, mainly just disagreements about data and findings of other scientists who've examined it and gave a favorable opinion for the film being authentic. So I'm just saying that in case you were wondering if we were favoring or shading an opinion by omission we didn't really stumble across anything that's that's point by point and we certainly would have presented it as
2: well as a counterpoint Okay. We're going to talk about another expert here. Uh, He was a certified forensic examiner. His name's Jeff Glickman. And this is fascinating because it's a different take, yet another take on Patty.
1: Yeah. Visual take, visual uh, image expert.
2: Yes. And he was formerly with the North American Science Institute, which is no longer around, but they did a three-year study on the Patterson Gimlin film using intensive computer analysis. And the result of this was a 43-page Scientific study with 13 pages specifically about the Patterson-Gimlin film. An interesting connection: Jeff Glickman was recently commissioned by TIGAR. That's the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery. Tiger, yes, yes to examine their findings. From their Amelia Earhart investigation on Nikomoro, These are the guys that uh, are the biggest proponents of the castaway theory. On yeah, that there.
1: they had some artifacts and they had Jeff Glickman take a look at him. I found that to be an interesting connection there when you don't usually put Bigfoot together with yes. Amelia, but everything's connected. <laughs> Everything is connected. So
2: Amelia, I'm sure she would be shocked by that. While Mr. Glickman seems to be a very well-credentialed forensic examiner, and had actually started his own company, Fotech. Yeah, you ever heard of them? I think I have vaguely with in connection to investigations of s- yeah, certain things. Yeah. I you think know? they are an internationally recognized forensic image processing laboratory specializing in image enhancement and reconstruction. It should be noted here that the North American Science Institute does not seem that's the one I mentioned earlier, yeah. like a majorly recognized scientific organization. Now, it appears they have or had a paid staff that took over the research for the Bigfoot Research Project in 1997, run by researcher Peter Byrne, and it was Byrne who commissioned Glickman to analyze the film. Just mentioning this in case there are any complaints that NASI is not a credible organization, but Glickman appears well-suited for this analysis. I believe, yeah, we
1: also came across info that NASI shut down right after the report was commissioned. Yes. I think according
2: to Daigling. Yeah, according he says, to Daigling yeah. in his book, on uh, page 131 okay. of his book, if anybody wants to read more on that, Daigling talks about Glickman. Right. Glickman's research report was titled Toward a Resolution of the Bigfoot Phenomenon, and it was issued in June 1998 and contains 11 points of findings that are summarized as follows. Number one, Measurement of the creature, height 87 and a half inches, waist 81.3 inches. Dang. Yeah, it's a big waist. Chest 83 inches, weight 1,957 pounds. Yeah. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Okay. Length of arms, 43 inches, length of legs. 40 inches, arms longer than legs, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. Mm -hmm. Number two, the length of the creature's arms is virtually beyond human standards, possibly occurring in one out of 52 and a half million people. Point number three, the length of the creature's legs is unusual by human standards, possibly occurring in one out of a thousand people. Point four, nothing was found indicating the creature was a man in a costume, meaning no seams or interfaces that would indicate that that was some kind of costume that had been put together Mm -hmm. because it would have assembly points. Number five, hand movement indicates flexible hands. This condition implies that the arm would have to support flexion in the hands. An artificial arm with hand movement ability was probably beyond the technology available in 1967. Point number six, the Russian finding on the similarity between the foot casts and the creature's foot was confirmed, that's one of my favorite points, is that the tracks are not generated by a separate hoax, which is probably how you would have to do that if you had a costume. You would need to Mm -hmm. treat the tracks and the costume as two separate things that you had to deal with.
1: Right. Meaning that the foot on the costume then is actually what made the tracks or you have to then make another contraption that puts, you know, that has a tremendous amount of weight. Yes. That's what people were suggesting like, well, that's possible too. It's like, yeah, but is it probable that you would then have this other contraption that makes a really heavy depression with the same exact foot characteristics?
2: Yes. And you have to get to and from the scene of the crime without leaving any tracks or marks anywhere else. True that. Yes. So there are some theories on that. Something about cards, riding along next to you, this is not a place where you could drive a car, so that doesn't mm-hmm, work. Mm-hmm. Anyway, point number seven, preliminary findings indicate that the forward motion part of the creature's walking pattern could not be duplicated by a human being. Now, again, this is according to Glickman. Mm-hmm. Point number eight, rippling of the creature's flesh or fat on its right side was observed indicating that a costume is highly improbable. Point number nine, the creature's foot undergoes flexion like a real foot. This finding eliminates the possibility of a fabricated solid foot apparatus. It also implies that the leg would have to support flexion in the foot. An artificial leg with foot movement ability was probably beyond the technology available in 1967. Point number ten, the appearance and sophistication of the creature's musculature are beyond costumes used in the entertainment industry. And point number eleven, Non-uniformity in hair texture, length, and coloration is inconsistent with sophisticated costumes used in the entertainment industry. And that's something that Bill Munns goes really deep on. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that with him in his interview in the next part of the series. Mm -hmm. Jeff Glickman's closing statement on his analysis is as follows, quote, despite three years of rigorous examination by the author, the Patterson-Gimlin film cannot be demonstrated to be a forgery at this time, end quote. Mm -hmm. So getting back to that astronomical weight. Yeah, that's uh, the one uh, thing that uh, a lot of other, uh, even proponents
1: of the film disagree with, is that that seems like a very high calculation of weight.
2: Yes, and apologies to you, Patty, for (laughs) having this discussion without (laughs) giving you a chance to to chime in. To defend in. herself? Yes. It's, uh, it's holiday weight? Yes. yes. This is a, a one ton. The main criticism about Glickman's findings is that high weight calculation at 1,957 pounds. Now, in order to estimate the weight of Patty, researchers also need to estimate her height while standing fully erect, which she never does in the film clip because she's walking the whole time. Since each of the major researchers that have put forth estimates use different frames of the film for their calculations of walking height— their numbers differ in the amount of inches added to determine standing height.
1: Yeah, she kind of hunches over. She's got huge traps, as the guys in the gym would say. He, yeah. A huge trapezius. To get decent findings on her proportions,
2: you have to have her standing fully erect still yes. at the top of her height, which she never does in the film. Right. And here's where you're going to see these heights are a little bit all over the place. Dr. Grover Krantz estimated a maximum walking height of 72 inches or six feet tall. John Green, 80 inches. Dmitry Bayanoff and Igor Bortsev, around 78 inches, and Jeff Glickman, 87 inches. Yeah, so
1: you can see his height estimates are... Higher.
2: L- yeah. Which would affect others. his weight. Exactly. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. So how much do you add to the estimated walking height to determine a height standing fully erect and thus an approximation of the weight? Well, Dr. Krantz used a calculation of adding 8 to 8.5% to the walking height and arrived at a standing height of 87 and half inches tall, or 7 foot 3.5 inches. From this, biomedical researcher Dr. Hinner Farnbach estimated the weight was more likely closer to 542 pounds or 245.8 kilograms.
1: Yeah, I think that 542 pounds is easier for a lot of other researchers to swallow than the 1957- poundage there. But I believe Jeff Glickman never revised that. He stood by that figure. He's like, well, that's what I got. Yeah. You guys work it out yourselves. Well, everybody's sticking to their guns. <laughs> right. Well, remember Dr. John Napier? No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> Did we talk about him already? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was hours ago for the listener, weeks <laughs> ago for us. Yes. Well, Napier was a British orthopedic surgeon, primatologist, and paleoanthropologist, a specialist in hands and feet of humans and primates, and was one of the scientists at the Smithsonian screening back in 1969. Remember right. that, Oh, right? yes, yeah. now I remember him, yes. Yeah, there you go. Well, Napier was at one time director of their primate biology program and was one of the first well-known scientists to study Bigfoot, becoming fascinated enough by the evidence he'd seen to write his own books from 1973 entitled Bigfoot, the Sasquatch, and Yeti in Myth and Reality, and I think just Bigfoot, is the title from 1974, but that may be just a reprint title. Maybe just the one book there from 73. Well, Napier, if you remember, also studied the cripple foot track and the dermal ridges on the footprints. That I think really hooked him. Right, uh, the, those dermal ridges. Well, anyway, this guy's no slouch. He's no he's no crackpot here. An expert in exactly what you want: hands and feet of primates and people. So Napier was convinced that Sasquatch existed. And he said so in his book, but he didn't think the Patterson-Gimlin film was real. But it seems, on the other hand, he may have been on the fence about the film, because you can find somewhat conflicting statements by him regarding the PGF. However, these may be taken out of context, and we must admit we haven't read his book entirely, so they just seem a little conflicted. I'm going to go with him being just kind of on the fence. Again, he's giving it the possibility, Sasquatch being real, he's not sure about the PGF, though. For example, saying in his book, quote, there was nothing in this film which would prove conclusively that this was a hoax. And he says this on page 89, and then on page 95 saying, quote, there is little doubt that the scientific evidence taken collectively points to a hoax of some kind. The creature shown in the film does not stand up well to functional analysis, end quote. So he's kind of vacillating here a little bit, sounds like. I don't know what to make of those two quotes from the same book. Uh, Yeah. He's saying that he's not sure and then he's like, well, but also it's not real solid. Not entirely kosher for him. And the two main problems that Napier had with Patty involved her feet. And he was an expert in primate hands and feet, remember? So uh, he thought the length of the footprints were at odds with her estimated height and that the footprints were of the hourglass type, which he thought were suspicious. I'm not sure about that. To me... They seem pretty rectangular, you know, not much shape to them. So in any case, that's one thing he had a problem with, but I'm not sure what he meant by that because they don't seem to have an hourglass shape or any kind of longitudinal arch to me. But like everyone else, Napier is making assessments based on indirect evidence from the images in the film and footprint castings, even though he thought this indirect evidence was inconclusive and not solid so as to prove Bigfoot was real to him anyway it was compelling enough that he thought Bigfoot shouldn't be dismissed outright and was worthy of serious scientific study. He's open to the idea. He's yeah. just not hes just not sure about this whole PGF thing and, and what's been presented. So he needed more information. So another thing you find on page 95 was another good quote summing up his feelings. Quote, perhaps it was a man dressed up in a monkey's skin. If so, it was a brilliantly executed hoax, and the unknown perpetrator will take his place with the great hoaxers of the world. Perhaps it was the first film of a new type of hominid, quite unknown to science, in which case Roger Patterson deserves to rank with Dubois, the discoverer of Pithecanthropus erectus, or Raymond Dart of Johannesburg, the man who introduced the world to its immediate human ancestor, Astrolopithecus africanus.
2: Okay, we got just a few more guys to talk about here. These, uh, a little bit less information on them, but still they're important in the big picture. Mm-hmm. One of them is Bernard Hoovelmans. Or hevelman's Ivan. it's H-E-U-V-E-L-M-A-N-S. Uh, mm-hmm. Bernard was a Belgian-French zoologist, field researcher, and explorer known as one of the founding fathers of cryptozoology. He was also inspired by our man Ivan T. Sanderson, who you may have heard us talk about many times, even in this series, mm-hmm. who was friends with John Keel, as a matter of fact. And during World War II, hovelmans escaped from a Nazi prison camp and then later worked as a jazz singer- in Paris. Wow. Yeah. That'd be a guy that I wish we could have interviewed.
1: Yeah. Put him on the list. He should <laughs> uh, should have talked to. But uh, just fascinating guy. But I just, I love that he also embraced cryptozoology.
2: Yeah. Jack of all trades. But even though he was down for cryptozoology, he didn't believe the Patterson-Gimlin film was real. Hmm. Although he hesitated making an assessment after seeing Dr. Grover Krantz be in favor of it. Now he thought it had been hoaxed by a guy in a suit. His principal complaints against the thing in the film was that the hair pattern was too uniform. The hair on the breast was not primate-like. Patty wasn't alarmed enough or didn't walk away fast enough after seeing Patterson advance on her. And as we said a few minutes ago, there wasn't enough of a butt crack. Uh, that's <laughs> what we also call ICS or insufficient <laughs> cheek separation. <laughs>
1: Again, with the butt cheeks. Again. But you know what? I, I kind of get that, as we mentioned a little bit before. In seeing that, they don't kind of move on their own as you might expect a large human person walking away, or maybe even an ape. But I will agree that it seems a little bit seamless. You can see a line there, but he's not seeing enough jiggling, I suppose. But it's interesting, though, that one thing that he mentions is that as a zoologist, he would expect that Patty would have more of a reaction. And even though, you know, she's a big creature, I guess he was expecting her to kind of trot faster away from them. Yeah. But then I would argue it's like no, she knows she's powerful. Yeah. And they weren't very big guys anyway. You know, Roger Patterson was 5'2". I'm thinking Bob is maybe 5'6", five 5'7". Five
2: well, again, you're making an estimation about the behavior of a creature that as far as we know doesn't even exist. So, yeah, right. If you're applying strictly animal behavioral science to it, you're ignoring the possible influence of the human component of Patty if there is some of that in there with for yeah, her if yeah. she's real yeah if you that, believe any of this
1: at all <laughs> right that was my point early on and that you're trying to assess what this creature is either from the viewpoint of other apes or humans but she is somewhere in the middle she's her own kind of thing and she may have slightly different behaviors that are not expected of either so that was interesting. From his perspective, but it also seems he had a lot of respect for Grover Krantz and was hesitant to make a declaration one way or the other, even though the reflexive one is just to say it's a guy in a suit. Right. But he ended up believing it was a guy in a suit or at, yes. least, at least stating that anyway. So uh, who's our next gentleman, though? He seems to be all over the YouTube.
2: Well, yes, he's more current. He's the one that a lot of present day or people who are maybe new to the research on it would know of. His name's M.K. Davis. mm mm-hmm. And he has worked with Bill Munz, who we'll be hearing from Uh on some things. And Davis and Jeff Glickman had done their own image stabilization, which you can see on YouTube. I know that Jeff
1: Glickman has done his own or maybe was the first one to attempt an image stabilization on the film, according to David Daigling. So I'm not sure... When M.K. Davis did his
2: own, or if he did do his own, I believe he has though. So I'll say that.
1: Yeah, it it does
2: get a little confusing. A lot of people have stabilized it. Image stabilization is available to the masses now. Right. Having formerly worked in post-production, I remember when it came out or when you could first get to it in After Effects which is a application that you use to, you can do pretty much anything with. It, we always mention uh, Captain Disillusion. Oh, yes. He shows you how you can use After Effects to create any kind of crazy vortexes in the sky or whatever. But the thing about image stabilization is, I mean, everybody obviously gets the idea of what it does. It takes a shaky camera footage and it smooths it out. Now, yeah. they've had stuff for this for the camera user for decades, they have had the cam, which if you haven't heard of that, if you're a sports fan, you'll see them uh, guys wearing them all on the sidelines at football games. But it's this big rig with gyroscopes in it that keeps the camera smooth, no matter how the person is moving, that's yeah. operating yeah. it. And one of the first uses of a cam in a feature film was actually the shining, believe it or not, in the scene in the maze, the cam operator was mm-hmm. having to run backwards in the snow. That was a legendary kind of breakthrough moment. But that's applying it when you're actually shooting it. Right, and that's mechanical. It's mechanical. It's got gyroscopes and all kinds of counterbalances and that sort of thing. There are simpler versions of Steadicams. There's one called a Steadicam Junior that actually just works where you have a gimbal and there's a weight hanging down and that works more on just inertial resistance that keeps your camera smooth. Right. You know, for me, when I'm looking back, I seem to remember that image stabilization came out in software, in digital nonlinear post-production and editing and that sort of thing it was first available back in the mid 2000s at a point where it was practical. It was available earlier, but mm-hmm. you would try to do it. It wouldn't look right. You'd have to wait like 25 minutes to render it. And then you play it and it's like crappy. And then you got to do it again. You literally spend the whole day doing something that you can do now on your iPhone in a few seconds. <laughs> right. When this was done, according to David Daigling, uh,
1: what he stated was that Jeff Glickman had accomplished stabilizing the film. And Daigling saw this version back in 1996. Right, And he was pretty impressed with it because this is where Glickman had lined up the same registration points in different frames of the film so basically you could take a, a connect the dots outline of maybe where patty was at her joints and where she's moving in one frame and match that to a consecutive frame with the same registration points. And then you line those up. And then when you play that back, what people will notice is that then the background really looks like it's jumping around. It jumps
2: all around, right? Because you're selecting an object in the frame and telling it to be still. Yes, exactly. Right,
1: right. So then the background has to jump around. Something has to move, but Patty is still. And the results are amazing. And it
2: effectively eliminates the camera shake to at least a much more viewable degree. So again, this is another invention that Roger Patterson could have never dreamed was possible when he shot this film, if he was making a hoax. right? He never could have imagined that it would be possible to stabilize that footage while he was running and really take a very close look at that 16 millimeter film. And then there are arguments where people will say, well, he was shaking the camera at first
1: to kind of confuse people and and make it blurry. That's why, you know, it's, it's out of focus. It's blurry. It's shaking on purpose. Well, again, the first part is shaky when he's up and running, according to him. And then he settles down when he's able to crouch down on a knee, I think at that log. Yeah, Yeah. Right. And stabilize the camera. And the actual film is not all that blurry and grainy. Again, I want to make this point because I see this even in the literature when people are talking about it, that, you know, it's really grainy, it's blurry, it's, it's not good footage. It actually is good footage. It's just what you're seeing of Patty when she's in close-up is being blown up. Completely. So when you see that uh, high definition or the 5K image that's on our website of the whole frame, you can see she's actually little in the whole frame around her. So she's being blown up and then you're seeing the film grain, which for its time in film stock was actually pretty good. But getting back to MK Davis, he's on the show Killing Bigfoot, which I do not watch because I don't have cable, but I did happen to catch an episode of it. And you get to see him at his home, his little laboratory setup where he's got microscopes and he can analyze things like hair and and film and he's he 's really serious about it, and he 's posted a lot of quality videos on YouTube with some interesting analysis where he goes yeah. through and he just talks about it, and he knows his way around a computer i 'll say that, and then, as far as uh, uh, Photoshop, he knows what he 's doing, so he's able to present pretty compelling evidence on his own and has put forth quite a bit but there was something that he found apparently in one of the frames. That is a little bit controversial, isn't
2: it? Yeah, there's a flash like in a single frame of the film, and Davis came to the conclusion that it was a muzzle flash, or that a bullet had been fired from a gun and it was a shot from a gun. And then this just goes into this entire theory about the possibility of a Bigfoot massacre at the hands of loggers who, apparently when they come across... Bigfoots, they're supposed to keep it quiet so they can keep logging. I mean, there's just this whole complex theory about it. The thing I do want to say about it is, you know, we'll hear from Bill Muns on this. He has something to say Mm -hmm. about it. It's pretty interesting. He has analyzed the film frame by frame, every known copy of it and every available copy of it at high resolution. And he defines the flash as just an artifact on the film. And that whole theory to him is absurd to Mr. Munns. The thing is, for every theory there is about the film, there's somebody else who thinks that that theory is absurd. All due respect to both gentlemen. I personally don't believe that it's a muzzle flash, and I personally don't believe that there was a Bigfoot massacre. But that's one of the more controversial things associated with M.K. Davis. Right, so right. The, well, The Bigfoot massacre <laughs> hypothesis. No, but you, you brought up uh, an interesting point. We just got an
1: email today... Yes. ...as we are recording this from a listener who knows somebody who is a logger in the Olympic National Forest in Washington State mm. and has been doing that work for a number of years. And apparently there is something in the contract which states when you get hired on, that if you are to see a Sasquatch, you are not to report it at all. Ah. You have to keep quiet about it, which is, (laughs) it's it's fascinating. Why do
2: you suppose that is?
1: Well, the company that at least this person works for, they don't do clear-cutting. They Artisanal trimming, you could say. They they go in and they log. It's
2: especially curated. Yeah, thinning. Well, of yeah, the woods. right. Clear cutting.
1: Yes. It's you make bare the whole uh, hillside or wherever you're at for years until all the trees come back. They just go in and cut uh, trees that are ready to harvest, and then right. go back a few years later and, and do it. So you're you're not devastating whole areas. No, but, you're
2: keeping it a renewable resource. You're yeah. allowing the uh, the other trees to thrive by removing the older trees.
1: Unlike the mandate that they are supposed to report endangered animals, like if if you see a spotted owl, you're supposed to report it, or anything that could be harmed out in the woods, that's mandatory. This is opposite of that. You are not supposed to report any Sasquatch, although they may be endangered. Who knows? But one theory put forth is that if you were to report that and then suddenly it blows up into a news item and people come in there, it's going to hamper your ability to profit
2: from that parcel of land. So what we're talking about here is a corporate acceptance of the idea that Sasquatch (laughs) may in fact be real. And if it is, we are not to mention it because we'd like to continue logging.
1: Yeah, we don't okay. need any trouble around here or reports or wackos or whatever you're going to bring in with all that attention, possibly by reporting that or or who knows what authority is going to come in and, and squeeze you out of there. So to avoid all that, just keep mom about
2: the whole thing. But do report the spotted owl. Well, you have to. That is law. Yeah. So that. this here's the interesting thing. Yeah. So they can get away with this because there's probably no law that says they have to report a Sasquatch. Right. So they can well, say, hey, well, we can take this one off the list of could, what we could get prosecuted for. Because all they can do is slap them on the wrist and be like, you should have told us about there was a Bigfoot up there. Well, I, but you're not going to jail because we didn't pass a law saying that it was illegal not to report the Sasquatch you saw while you were cutting down trees.
1: Yeah, it has not made its way into law, into Right, and then legal if it does that, then like the a, government's,
2: oh, yeah, we have to admit that Bigfoot might be out there. It just, it's a whole can of worms. It's,
1: you don't want to go down that squatch road, but with endangered species, certainly there are statutes where they're trying to protect them, so you have to report that. But apparently this listener and their spouse say they know people who have seen footprints, Bigfoot oh. tracks, and yeah. have had Sasquatch encounters themselves. Well, there you go. That goes back to one of our ideas about corporations or corporate entities doing something that's an acknowledgement of something strange, but it happens so much that they had to say something about it. And, And it's not like the queen Mary where people will claim like, well, they're just doing that to sell tickets to their ghost tour. Yeah. There's no one going out there. These places are very remote where they're doing their work. Well, there you go. That's kind of coming to the end here of our scientist roundup. And I thought it would be apropos to end on some of the thoughts of Dr. Grover Krantz, just on his overview of the scientific community and their feelings in general about this topic. Because I think no matter what you feel about Dr. Krantz's observations or his stance on Bigfoot, I think they sum up very nicely just in general from his perspective as a scientist who was well-respected. So here are just a few things I took from the Chris Murphy book, The Bigfoot Film Controversy, as far as a statement from Krantz about why this really hasn't been studied all that much and why you don't really see point-by-point debunkings from serious scientists, only a few that are willing to come forward and be proponents of the film. So Dr. Grover Krantz made some statements in his own book, Bigfoot, Sasquatch Evidence, published in 1999, that sum up his position on the PGF and the scientific community in general, which we're going to sum up right here, right now. Quote, No matter how the Patterson film is analyzed, its legitimacy has been repeatedly supported. The size and shape of the body cannot be duplicated by a man. Its weight and movements correspond with each other and equally rule out a human subject. Its anatomical details are just too good. The world's best animators could not match it as of the year 1969, and the supposed faker died rather than make another movie. In spite of all this, and much more, the scientific establishment has not accepted the film as evidence of the proposed species. There are several reasons for this reluctance that are worthy of more discussion. End quote here. And of course, as we stated previously here, those declarations, those conclusions, David Daigling and other anthropologists thought were just a little too reckless, a little too accepting. Yeah. Well, yeah,
2: Krantz went into the whole thing skeptical, and then he came around on it, and then he became a kind of an evangelist for the topic, and confirmation bias probably crept into his presentation of information, but that doesn't change the fact that at the time he was a very well-respected academic mind, and his theories and ideas carried a lot of weight. So you can look at his... Final conclusions and say, well, at this point, he wanted to believe. He did want to believe. I believe that's the point that he got to. Yeah. But it's different between Dr. Grover Krantz wanting to believe. And a guy in a basement who learned everything about Bigfoot on the internet in a couple of weeks. This is exactly his specialty, like is, Dr. Jeffrey me. Meldrum.
1: <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> just, he just <laughs> read a few books and are really excited about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what else did Dr. Krantz have to say?
2: Well, I w- I'd like to start with this quote: "Most of the analyses of the film and its background have been made by laymen. Their studies and conclusions were published in popular magazines and books, not scientific journals. Most of these investigators did not know how to write a scientific paper or how." to get one published, end quote. So if they had submitted them, they probably wouldn't have been taken seriously by the editors because the subject isn't taken seriously. Therefore, the potentially concerned scientists were unaware of the great quantity and quality of evidence. None of them wanted to look into it until someone else verified it. Since this was the prevailing attitude, not much analysis happened because no one wanted to look foolish. And that's the funny thing about this. I just want to interject here. Mm -hmm. You basically molded this point out of your overall analysis for this section of our show, for this series. I couldn't agree with you more, but what's happening is all the scientists that want to say that there's nothing to look at here mm-hmm. are refusing to look at it themselves. So they can't say that with any degree of authenticity, because if they look at it, they've decided that they themselves will look silly. So what they're doing is just categorically shutting it down without actually reviewing the evidence because they're afraid what reviewing the evidence will make them look like.
1: Yeah, Exactly. And it's what David Dagling says is the reflexive argument. It was just like, no, that's stupid. Don't even look at that. And then without really analyzing it, or you look at it once and just say, that's it. It's a guy in a suit, which, you know, Daigling himself really should be commended for taking a look. Although he just can't go as far as Krant. And I don't know, you know, what he feels deep down, but I think he's pretty honest in his book. Just summarizing here, there are some really compelling elements to this that are worth thinking about, but I can't go that far. I can't go as far as Krantz, and Krantz shouldn't have done that either, but, you know, it's enough to look at, and in his opinion, he wrote a book about it, so it was enough to to give it some serious thought.
2: There's that, (laughs) I know we already talked about unpacking things. I don't don't want to unpack this, but what I do want to do, this is another expression that seems to be creeping into the zeitgeist these days, the stay in your lane, right? (laughs) And (laughs) so that's a thing that I'm hearing. A lot lately. And one of the things that Dagling does in his book is he gets kind of speculative on Hollywood and costume making and how costumes work and proposes how a costume might work for Patty. And the bottom line is he doesn't know anything about that. So he is definitely not in his lane there. Yeah. Now, our whole podcast is yeah. based on us not being in any lane at all. We're we're knowing anything about anything, really. Right. But but, but no, so I'm not yeah, right. I'm not saying, oh, look at me, I'm right and you're wrong. But what I'm saying is Dagling is not qualified to discuss what kind of costume would work because it's pure speculation based on a brief amount of research and no personal experience. Well, in that regard, he maybe knows as much about it as us. And maybe we know a tad more because we worked in film and TV. Well, also at this point, I've read Bill Munn's book and had a right. two hour oh, right. interview with yes. him that everyone's going to be hearing in the, later in the series. So okay. anyway, getting back on point, I did want to come back to one last observation that Krantz had been making was that Patterson's film was the first ever to purportedly show a Sasquatch in the wild. There have been many fakes since Patterson's film. Krantz had seen eight of them and they were all fake in his opinion. So given the amount of hoaxing, it's not surprising there's not much scientific interest in the years since. And that makes sense because if you got all these hoaxes, your scientists can't all just sit around looking at whatever Bigfoot yeah. movie you yeah. Joe Blow made last week. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well,
1: you get tired of it and it really muddies the water, and then you don't even want to take a look at it. But it's not just that either. Because there's another element here which is anathema, abhorrent to the scientific community, and that is, you know, even fewer scientists. Want to study the Sasquatch because of the quote unquote lunatic fringe, making connections to quote Sasquatch, moving through space time warps, riding in UFOs, making telepathic connections. Showing superior intelligence and the like. End quote. That's from Krantz saying
2: that. I feel like you might be a card-carrying member of the lunatic fringe, (laughs) Mister Forrest. (laughs) No,
1: I I do not claim any of those, but uh, they're fun to look at. I'll say those observations there, and and maybe we'll touch on a few of those in our conclusions. But to a scientist, you that's a silly. Don't even go there when you can't even have any data about any of that at all. Unless you're, I guess, Robert Bigelow. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't. That's not something a serious anthropologist, zoologist, maybe even a cryptozoologist can even consider because that's too far out there. And the people that come in there looking to do that are really just making things worse. They're not giving any credibility to the subject, they're taking it away. Because the, quote, lunatic fringe, end quote, will try and latch on to any scientist that shows an interest and try to sway them into their thinking. That's Kranz's thinking about that, is that as soon as you see a scientist, somebody from this field here that is pretty woo-woo, they're going to try and latch onto that scientist, get them to speak on their behalf about all these other crazier possibilities, and, quote, it is tantamount to academic suicide to become associated with any of these people, end quote. That yeah, was Krantz. So yeah. that's why they don't want to go there, because now you're going to be seen as even more of a wacko by your fellow scientists. And so to sum up Krantz's observations here, quote, finally, and most important, Krantz says, there is the absence of any definitive proof that the Sasquatches exist at all. If this had been a known species, the Patterson film would have been accepted without question. But without the clear proof that biologists are willing to accept, a strip of film is of little persuasive value. Of course, a film like this would have been accepted as fairly good evidence for a new species of cat or skunk. But even then, the type of specimen would still have to be collected to make it official. For something so unexpected, at least a science, as the Sasquatch, the degree of proof that is required rises proportionately. What is said here about scientific ignorance regarding the Patterson film is equally true for the footprint evidence and the testimony of eyewitnesses. None of this is normally published in the scientific journals. Hoaxes do occur, and the lunatic fringe is all over the place. I don't know of a single scientist who has firmly denied the existence of the Sasquatch on the basis of reasonable study of the evidence. Instead of this, most scientists deny it because, to the best of their knowledge, there is no substantial body of evidence that can be taken seriously.
2: End quote. Krantz finishes the section by saying Dmitry Bayanoff urged him and others to pursue experts in various related fields, but that hasn't produced any useful results, and that after his experience with the dermal ridges, he couldn't afford another full round of quote, expert chasing. Krantz got excited and was trying to get other experts in the field to take a look
1: at stuff. And that's what he means by expert chasing. And it just did more damage to his career. Yeah. Trying to get people to be serious about this. And like, come on, get out of here with this stuff. You nut job. He wasn't prepared to do that. Plus it takes a lot of time and energy away from his other studies and research. And although this was a major part of it, it's just that he couldn't expend any more time and energy on that. And it didn't do much anyway. So even though Bayanov was urging him in the American scientific community to do something, to keep pursuing it,
2: yeah, he just ran out of steam on that, and he had suffered already. All right, now we want to talk a little bit about some of the Hollywood special effects movie experts and gurus that have weighed in on the Patterson-Gimlin film. And I just want to quickly point out that the very next part of this series is an extensive interview with one of those experts who has done the most out of all of them, the most looking at the Patterson-Gimlin film, and that's Bill Munns. And so you're going to be hearing from them in the next part of this series. And he will also be talking about some of these guys who he knew and worked with in many cases. Mm -hmm. But we wanted to make sure that you knew who they were before you got into his interview and what they thought of the Patterson-Gimlin film or what they said publicly about it, if, if they were asked about it. If you're really into movies... You may have heard of
1: these names before, or, or even if you were a red carpet watcher, maybe you've heard these names, but most people probably haven't because they're behind the scenes, but they're legendary. And if you're going to think that the Patterson-Gimlin film shows a guy in a suit, then why not hear from the people who would be the best makers of these suits in any decade? And so that's who these gentlemen are, the best of the best in making these suits. Because I will say one thing about the movie industry, is many people don't take it very seriously, but they represent the craftspeople and the artists who work in that field are the very best in what they do. And if it's makeup, costumes, cinematography, all these various related fields, special effects, it's the best on the planet and always has been because movies demand it, the viewers demand it. So as technology increases and evolves These are the best people as far as producing anything visual or of that realm of costumes and acting and all that stuff. A lot of the things we are talking about in the Patterson Gimlin film.
2: Right. So one of the first guys we want to talk about before we even mention him, I do have to say I did work with him. At one point, this is a weird Stan. Connection. Stan Winston, really renowned, multiple Academy Award-winning Hollywood special effects makeup creator. And when I say I worked with him, by that I mean no, I didn't meet him at all. Mm. Back when I was working commercials as an assistant editor, I was the assistant editor on a Super Bowl spot called Budweiser Horses. Oh yes, it's in 1996, and it's where all the horses line up on the football field and they kick the football and they play football. And this was a big deal because the horse leg kicking the football, yeah. Stan Winston built. And yeah. it, it had to kick the ball and then the the wider shots, the horses are all running around or whatever. So that's my brush with uh, Stan Winston fame. <laughs> well, but, you uh, would be
1: in good company. One, that points out that the leg at that time, way back when, years ago when you were a kid, is prosthetic, not digital. So Completely nowadays, prosthetic. Yeah. And then on
2: top of that, I would also like to point out that... Even though it looks a lot like a horse leg, it does not move like one at all. It looks fake. <laughs> right. And this was 1996, uh-huh. 30 years after the Patterson-Gimlin film. I see. Yeah. It looks, the fur looks right on it, but it looks like a robot horse leg kicking a football. Just yeah. for the record.
1: Yes. But this guy is one of the best and one of the legendary greats in his field. Yes, and, absolutely. And again, while you're in good company here, uh, he's collaborated with some of the biggest names in the biz. Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, Tim Burton, Robert Zemeckis. To name. Phil Philbrook. Yeah, that, that's not in that's this That's not on that wise. Oh, no, no. And you know how I like to build lists. (laughs) it's just not in there and he's been nominated for an oscar quite a lot and won his first for best visual effects for the movie aliens remember that oh of course i do and then he was nominated for predator we talked about that he was nominated i think also for edward scissorhands won two oscars for terminator 2 won one for jurassic park etc etc so stan winston Yeah, he's just one of the greats of makeup, visual, and even digital special effects, which he got into later. By the way, he's no longer with us. No, no, no. But uh, his Bigfoot-type experience included making the Wookiee costumes for the 1978 Star Wars Holiday Special. Remember that? Yes. I vaguely remember that one. Yeah. So that's Bigfoot-ish. And just for some of our horror fans out there, he made his directorial debut with a listener favorite, Pumpkinhead. Oh, you can't go wrong with Pumpkinhead. (laughs) But... He was not a fan of the Patterson-Gimlin film, at least not publicly, sorry to say. Yeah. On the mid-90s TV series Movie Magic, Winston said about the PGF after viewing it, if one of my colleagues created this suit for a movie, he would be out of business. It's a guy in a bad hair suit. Sorry. (laughs) Winston said he thought the suit could have been created for a couple of hundred bucks or at least under $1,000 back at that time. So pretty dismissive.
2: Yes, he is. Bill Munns will be specifically addressing that comment in our interview with him in uh, next week's episode.
1: Yeah, and we believe that there's a reason for that. But another, maybe a counterpoint here to that is Ellis Berman. Now, Ellis Berman and his Berman Studios of Hollywood had made all sorts of creatures for the movies and other attractions, and had even made a Bigfoot for a carnival exhibit, but denied making panty for the PGF. He said he could create a similar one, but that it would cost him more than $10,000 to make. So maybe just Stan Winston had better wholesale suppliers.
2: I don't know where well, he's again, getting the cheap deal on that. I don't want to spoil what Mr. Munn says, but the, right. it, is, it is critically important to what he thought of Stan's analysis of the film. So oh, I'm, sure, I'm going to sure. save it for next week.
1: Right. Well, tell us, though, about another Hollywood legend. He's He's another great up there
2: and maybe even more ape experience, but maybe of that same ilk yeah uh, rick baker a lot of people will know his name he was nominated for an academy award a record 11 times and won seven times his first for an american werewolf in london oh that
1: was so cool that transformation yeah it was amazing
2: and the werewolf creature for michael jackson's thriller video oh yeah classic baker was an assistant to another special effects makeup legend Dick Smith for the movie The Exorcist. Oh, yes. But for ape-like costumes, Rick Baker is pretty knowledgeable as well, first working on the costume and acting as King Kong for the 1976 movie, having been nominated for an Oscar and winning a BAFTA award for Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes in 84. And then in 1987, he won the Academy Award for his Bigfoot costume for the classic Harry and the Hendersons, <laughs> yeah. a part of which was just yeah. for sale. Like last week, remember oh, on the versions? E- yeah. yeah, but not the whole thing. I think no, well, no. For the cheaper deal, no. Someone had a- bought the whole. No, right. there was a whole version of it from the film, but I wow. think it was like twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, I think so you could buy. There, there's a, piece a note, of it. by the way, if you saw that in the woods, you would not. It was comical looking. So yeah, it was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But
1: anyway, um, but he knows what he's talking about when it comes to apes. I would say yes. Yeah.
2: And it, Baker also was not a fan of Patty in the Patterson Gimlin film, oh. saying on Geraldo Rivera's 1992 show, "Now it can be told." that it, quote, looked like cheap fake fur. Hmm. Baker also, it seems, relayed a rumor he'd heard that fellow special effects makeup creator John Chambers had sold a crappy walk-around suit, in quotes, as a, quote, gag to be played on the guy that shot it end quote. Meaning we take it to Patterson. I don't know if this means that the bad suit was meant to cheat or fool Patterson into paying for an inferior product, but later on, Rick Baker's studio stated that Baker didn't believe that rumor was true anymore.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a funny thing to pass along because you're implying that John Chambers would then be playing a joke on Roger Patterson. Yeah. But it's just like, yeah, he paid a thousand dollars and I gave him a crappy suit. And it's just a funny Hollywood insider kind of thing,
2: uh, hearing about John Chambers. Well, speaking of John Chambers, let's talk about John Chambers.
1: Oh, another Hollywood special effects prosthetic makeup artist legend. And maybe something you don't know here. I'm sure you know it. Maybe you haven't made this connection yet. Well, Chambers is best known for creating the groundbreaking flexible face masks and prosthetics Four, Planet of the Apes movie series. Ah, yes. Remember that? Oh, of course. of course. Remember, Cornelius, Dr. Zaius, classics, yes. right? And he won an honorary Oscar for his work in 1969 and was also the first motion picture makeup artist to receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame.
2: That was an honorary Oscar because there was no category at the time, right?
1: That's right. I, I think that category did not come into existence until 81 or, right. or sometime in the 80s. Yeah. So he was truly groundbreaking in that sense and very well respected. And he's also known for making Spock's pointy ears for the original Star Trek series. Ooh. You know, overall, you could say he knows what he's doing when it comes to ape prosthetic makeup and costumes.
2: Well, those ears always looked amazing. Well, I'm talking about Planet of the Apes. Though. Oh, I know. Yeah, but he knows Spock's ears. I, honestly, no, they look You get a lot of close looks at those ears and you <laughs> never see a scene.
1: No, he was very impressive and uh, he's just a really a cool, impressive guy and... Let me ask you this, Scott. You've seen the movie Argo, right? With oh, ben yeah. Ben Affleck? Yeah, I like that movie. It won the Oscar for Best Picture in 2012, right? Yeah. And you remember the makeup artist played by John Goodman, who helps out Affleck? Yes. Well, Goodman was portraying John Chambers. Oh, that's super cool. <laughs> that is, it's pretty cool to put that together. Yeah, I remember the character and I thought it was a lot of fun. So as the movie was portraying the events of, there was a John Chambers and there was a Tony Mendez. Well, the real John Chambers played by John Goodman, was really helping out the real CIA officer, Tony Mendez, being played by Ben Affleck. Right. And what they were doing has now become known as the Canadian caper all these years later because it was classified for a long time, I think until the 90s, until the uh, mid or late 90s. So uh, the story wasn't known. And then in 2012, it became a motion picture. Well, Mendez had asked Chambers to help with rescuing six American embassy workers who were hiding out at the Canadian ambassador's residence during the Iran hostage crisis in 1979 and 80. Chambers had previously worked for the CIA as a contractor, creating disguise kits for their overseas agents isn't that cool yeah uh, tony mendez had john chambers set up a fake movie production office in hollywood as part of a cover story that the six u.s diplomats were working as canadians scouting iran for a film location for a movie in pre-production to be called argo which was the basis for the real movie argo there you go <laughs> so the caper worked the Americans Escaped.
2: Here you go with your one of your favorite things in the world. A mm. spoiler. Dude, it's a, it's a it's a you real You can't help it. You oh, guess have, what? If you At talk the end about of a movie, you have to tell how it ends. That's just it's in your nature. Right? Well,
1: this is important and you could not spoil is look it
2: pertinent it. to the Bigfoot? It story? is
1: because okay. as I said, before you so rudely interrupted me, the <laughs> caper worked. The Americans escaped and Chambers was awarded the Intelligence Medal of Merit from the CIA.
2: Yeah. See? There you go. That's pretty cool.
1: Well, tell us how Chambers is connected to the PGF.
2: Well, he passed away in 2001. He was 78 years old, but at some point he was probably living at the Motion Picture Country Home, a retirement community with hospital care for folks who used to work in the film and television industry. Chambers was interviewed by Bobby Short, a Bigfoot researcher, Bigfoot enthusiast, and as they are generally known, Bigfooters. Yes, Bigfooters. Yes. And I've actually been to that uh, home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because my wife's insurance is through the Writers Guild. We had to go there for something, and it's beautiful. Like, oh, so It's yes. way out towards Calabasas, kind of, yeah, peaceful area where there must be so many legends, like, yeah. there that you don't even really realize who they are.
1: Right. I think people were shocked back in the 30s, I believe, just offhand remembering the story that there were a lot of famous actors who yeah. were dying destitute
2: and with no help or care or family. That's to right. Take That's care why it got founded. Yeah. yeah. So Bobby Short, who was a registered nurse, was, and uh, apparently did the while wearing her nurse's uniform <laughs> yeah. interviewed Chambers in February of 1997 specifically about the rumors that had circulated for years that he was the one who had made the ape costume for Roger Patterson. During the interview, Chambers denied any connection with the Patterson-Gimlin film and gave a now famous quote about it within the Bigfooters community saying, "Quote, I'm good, but not that good." in quote. <laughs> yeah. Chambers went on to say that in his opinion neither he nor anyone else could have made the Bigfoot scene in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Years earlier, before 1975, we guess, because that's when their book came out, Robert and Francis Gwinnett, authors of Bigfoot, the Mysterious Monster, had interviewed Chambers, and he told them, quote, that if the creature is a man in a suit, then it's no ordinary gorilla suit. It is not something they bought or rented in a store. It would have to be something tailor-made, end quote. Chambers also said that if it was a suit, then he thought it might have been made out of real animal fur. Yeah, looked that good to him. Chambers also admitted to Bobby Short, the nurse, that he was aware of the circulating rumors that he was the PGF ape suit creator, but never came out and corrected them because it was good or his reputation.
1: Again, that's a testament to the suit being very good, as we've all heard repeatedly.
2: Yeah. So he's willing to take credit for it kind of just by not saying A anything. lot of people are willing to take credit for it, either by not saying something or by saying something. Like if you go back to the Morris family saying, hey, right. we made that suit. That's yeah. our suit. By the way, here's our giant store full of costumes. Yeah. Which I'd so, love to visit in Charlotte. But... No, <laughs> yes. I'm, a ho- I'm planning to visit it, although they might be yeah. mad at me. So Well, I might not say who I am when I go
1: in there. (laughs) Look, you you can look at it both ways here. One is that the suit is so good, you're willing to kind of latch yourself onto it in some way. Or think about this: the suit is so good that two of the big heavyweights in prosthetic costume making in Hollywoods have to poo-poo it. Like, no, come on, that's not that. Yeah, we could do that,
2: right? And that's another thing that Munz talks about: is your reputation as a costumer, right? is affected by how you react to something that nobody can figure out what it is. Sure, it's sure. better to say... Oh yeah, I could do that. Of course I can do that. Wait, you, yeah. uh, by the way, I'm available for your next movie. <laughs> I have an opening, yeah, yeah,
1: coming up, but no, you cuz if you said, "Geez, that looks so good. I can't do that." It's like, "Oh, right. well, then we're going to find we're somebody not who can." You. Yeah. What you, do you do well, we, we thought you could handle this. So of course it's easy. That thing looks like a piece of crap and you could do it in your sleep for a couple hundred bucks. Right. But let's talk about somebody who also made costumes, I think on his own, but he also acted in them a lot. And that's Janusz Prohaska. Now, John Green had shown the PGF to Hungarian actor and stunt mime Janos Prohaska, who thought that the creature in the film looked pretty authentic.
2: And I want to point out here real quick, this is something that I learned from reading Munn's book. The performer in a costume like that is called the mime. In general, the, yeah, yeah. And so if you look at Andy Circus, he would be called the mime, you right. know, until he got out of the costume, which he's an amazing actor, by the way. But the person in the costume, they generally refer to it as the mime and Muns when he's in his book talking about costumes, you'll hear him say the mime, this and the mime that you got to make sure the mime doesn't get too hot, isn't dehydrated, you yeah, know that kind of stuff. Oh, something. yeah, no, I, no. Thought, I thought it was fascinating because I didn't know that.
1: So Janos or janos he's Hungarian, but he lived in the US and got a lot of work in TV and film. You know, he had a lot of experience playing various monsters animals and apes and costumes for television in the 1960s. Prohaska had played a gorilla in a few episodes of Gilligan's Island. (laughs) He played an albino gorilla in the TV series Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And he also appeared on What's My Line. Remember that old TV show there where people had to guess what your occupation is? I was going to say, they've I redone act- it a billion
2: times. Now? I actually saw that Gilligan's Island just a few days ago. Oh, yeah, seriously? <laughs> yes, I did. And Do I did you not remember- realize that's who I was looking at. Did again. you see the gorilla? In it? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So that was Janus. Yeah,
1: weird. exactly. He's only credited for, uh, I think, that one episode, but he'd appeared a couple of times whenever there's a gorilla, of course. Yeah. So he probably brought his own costume and they're like,
2: well, that's pretty good. <gasps> no way. I just read ahead. Okay, I'll wait for you to say this. Okay. Okay.
1: He had made a monkey suit for his appearance on What's My Line, and uh, for the original OG Star Trek fans out there, Bro played the Horta in the Devil in the Dark episode, which was William Shatner's favorite episode. And the very first time Bones, (laughs) Dr. McCoy says, I'm a doctor, not a... Blank. You fill in the blank there. Yes. Whatever he's saying. So, and in this case, it was a bricklayer because when Captain Kirk asked Doctor McCoy to heal the Horta, it kind of looks like this blobular stone thing. Oh, it's I know cool. what it looks like. Yeah. This is
2: what I was so excited about. Yeah. I know that episode backwards and forwards. Oh, you do? <laughs> oh, yeah. But I'm going to let you finish this sentence before oh, I okay. jump in All right. with my Spock impression.
1: It was a well-liked episode. Leonard Nimoy also thought that Devil in the Dark was a wonderful episode and that Leonard Nimoy also narrated In Search Of, which yes. did an
2: episode on the PGF. So once again... Everything is connected. Well, and this is what I want to point out. In addition to this, the great scene in this was when Spock does a mine meld with the horda. Because see what's happening is oh. it's this planet and <laughs> right. they're mining the planet. Uh-huh. And the horta is this rock monster thing and it's killing the miners like crazy. Yeah. It turns out it's killing the miners because the miners are inadvertently killing the horda's babies. Now I'm doing oh. spoilers. for those Oh ones. yeah. <laughs> Dang it. You know what I was gonna watch <laughs> <Come on>. that? <laughs> I know it came out in 1967, oh. wasn't it? But I'm not sure what year. But the thing is, he Spock does the mind meld with the rock creature, ah. and then he famously goes, "Pain." That's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing he gets from the horde. The Horde oh, is I very see. upset because all her babies are being killed. Right. So it's pain. It's really a great performance go. from yeah. Mr. Nimoy.
1: Well, that's one character he played. And he made some of these costumes. I think he had to uh, so do that a spot addition.
2: Like, yeah, it crawled around. He yeah. would have been down on his hands and knees with this outfit on his back because yeah. it was very short and big kind of blob rock thing that sort of moved like a hoop skirt. So he's
1: played a fair amount of ape creatures in costumes on TV. And you know, I think one main point to keep in mind here with Prohaska telling telling his, his story here is that he has a lot of experience acting in ape suits that were the best on TV at the time. You know, even though David Daigling would consider them schlocky, but that's all we got back then. And we all loved it. So these suits would be contemporary with the same era as what Patterson could have come up with in the mid to late 1960s. That's why I think it's important. You know what I'm saying? Here's a professional costumer. Yeah. If Patterson had the money, he would be hiring this guy to make it. Right not maybe trying to do it himself. Or Patterson was just a natural born costume maker of the best of his generation there, but he was a rodeo rider instead. Yeah. Prohaska was asked what he thought of the PGF, uh, you know, if he thought it was faked, and he said, I don't think so. To me, it looks very, very real. His conclusions were that to him, if it was a costume, it was, quote, remarkably realistic and sophisticated, the best costume he had ever seen. And according to Dr. Jeffrey Meldham's book, the only explanation he could come up with was that fake hair was glued directly to the actor's skin, which just imagine that nightmare. But then again, as we said before, you'd have to be Charles Atlas, the bodybuilder of the 50s, to exhibit some of that muscle definition we see with Patty and the largeness of it, unless you, again, have this whole padded silicone, you know, bags of water, as uh, Dagling suggests might be taking place here. To give the the squish, that's the other option. You If you're gluing it directly to the skin or also, as Daigling suggests, maybe glued to a tight-fitting pair of long johns with a waffle print, it's just a lot of time doing that.
2: Well, and going back to our bonus episode from last week, think about everything that Yorma went through on Land of the Lost yeah. and how long that took. And then, by the way, take a look at what he looked like. It wasn't exactly the most realistic-looking primate. I mean, it was based just, on Chaka, you right. know? And <laughs> yeah. so
1: but Which, by the way, that BBC uh, recreation documentary, yeah, that's what their a recreation of, of Patty looked like. It right. looked like Chaka.
2: Chaka looked better. <laughs> Yorma looked yeah. better. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the no, whole his point. Was,
1: his was pretty good. So yeah. again, that's been a couple of theories put forward as far as costume fabrication that somehow Patterson or somebody who's remained quiet... To this day, had taken something form-fitting. Now spandex, uh, according to Jeff Glickman, was not available no. in 1967. And we talked that about that as well. Yeah, we talked yeah. about that before. Yeah, I know. But something form-fitting, and as we said, uh, Dagling is proposing. Well, maybe it was cotton, something like that. But it would have to have been to look that good something that has to be form-fitting directly to the actor's skin, because you can see all this muscle definition. And then what I would put forth is that then your actor there has to be some kind of bodybuilder or somebody with huge bulk. Otherwise, then you have to figure out how to bulk up the suit to these gigantic proportions. And then you have to make it look good while you're walking in it. Right. So it gets more, to me, more and more improbable the more you kind of stretch this out.
2: By the way, stretch don't say pun intended. No. So uh, spandex <laughs> actually came out 20 years later, according yeah. to Munns, 20 years later. So right. that's pretty interesting. In fact, I'll read this just short quote yeah. from Munns' book. In 1967, we didn't have the spandex stretch furs we have now from National Fiber Technology. We just had plain old fur cloth woven much like carpets are with a base weave and a pile, the hair. And the base weave didn't have any real elasticity. We also had real animal pelts, like bearskins. We had wefted human hair, the stuff common wigs are made of. We had custom hand-tied lace hair, called ventilated hair pieces, like the common beards and mustaches. And we had crepe wool, which was a common theatrical hair we hand-laid and glued in place on the suit or the performer's body. Human hair and yak hair for hand-laid work was also occasionally done. Mm. Mostly suits were either real animal pelts or fur cloth. The other options were either very costly or very cheap looking. Issues of hair color and color changing, hair length, hair density, options for styling and cost dictated the decision of which hair material to go with on a given job. So that's Munn's getting into a whole hair thing. But what I thought was important there was to mention how they didn't have, he's making very clear, there was nothing that stretched like that in 1967. So now we've heard from the people that actually make the suits and wore them. But now let's take a look at the
1: technicians who work at the studio, the people that might be doing more of the mechanical special effects side, or the studio technicians that would be more familiar with actually capturing it on film and who have seen animals on film and documentaries and such, the movie studio experts.
2: There's an interesting bit here from the Wikipedia entry regarding the film being seen by movie industry executives and their opinions in addition to individual special effects makeup artists. Now, according to Murphy, Chris Murphy, and John Green, Roger Patterson, Bob Gimlin, and Al Diatley all traveled down to Hollywood to show the PGF to the head of the documentary film department at Universal Studios, Dale Sheets, along with some other technicians. The feeling by Sheets and the others was that they could attempt to fake the costume, but they would have to create a completely new system of artificial muscles and then find an actor who could be trained to walk like that. They said it might be done but would have to add that it, quote, would be almost impossible, as reported in Hunter and DeHendon's book. So that statement points to them being impressed with the musculature apparent in the suit and also the actor's performance if it was an actor in a suit. A quote from Dale Sheets and his team, as it appears in Dick Kirkpatrick's article from National Wildlife Magazine, April-May 1968, is more of the same general, non-committal, summarized consensus in that, quote, if it is, a man in an ape suit. It's a very good one. A job that would take a lot of time and money to produce. Well, more professionals being impressed with it, at least. Grover Krantz stated that John Green showed a first-generation copy of the original PGF to Walt Disney executive Ken Peterson back in 1969, two years after it had been made. Peterson told Green at that time that their technicians would not be able to duplicate the film. The implication is that if Disney Studios leaders in animation and animatronics didn't think they could do it, then it's very unlikely Patterson could have. By the way, Mons weighs in in his mm-hmm. book on that, mm-hmm. and he said that Disney was a poor choice at the right. time because their expertise was animatronics and animation, but not specifically those kinds of costumes. Now, Bigfoot researcher Peter Byrne also took a copy to Disney's chief on animation and some assistance in 1972. Now, David Daigling cites that it's not clear who exactly talked to whom and when when concerning Disney, but essentially what the experts told Byrne was that they didn't have the ability to duplicate the film with their technology. Now, according to Greg Long, who wrote the book we told you about where he interviewed Mm -hmm. all the, you know, just pretty much everybody that was ever involved, Mm -hmm. he's citing Peter Byrne. He says, when Byrne showed the film to the head of animation and the assistants, they thought it was a beautiful piece of work, but that it must have been shot in a studio. When Byrne told them it had been shot in the woods of Northern California, quote, they shook their heads and walked away. <laughs> either you're pulling our leg, or
1: I mean, you're I'm not completely sure what that means. dumbfounded by yeah. Yeah, it. Yeah, because because to right. them
2: it's either, oh, this is an unknown primate, or someone is way better at what we do than us.
1: Yeah, it's kind of mysterious. I mean, you know, you can read that quote, of course, in the wiki entry, but it's like it kind of leaves it there. And it's like, well, what is their reaction? It's like I, I took it to mean like get out of here you you nut, you're pulling our leg Yeah. in that maybe or we don't know what it is and we just have to walk away yeah it's like like we can't comment on that i don't know what that is but you seem to be better than us
2: yeah and as i said mine's opinion is that disney and universal studios experts weren't the most knowledgeable studios to ask about this because their specialties were animation and animatronics and still one of the leaders of both anthropologist and author david dagling has an interesting thought about posing questions to disney studios regarding those two specialties Daigling says that the exact question you asked the Disney technicians is important. If you ask them if they could produce the scene in animated form and the answer is no, then it just means the special effects couldn't create that scene in the film. If you ask them if they could have gone out in the woods and produced these images and the answer was no, then it means they couldn't have created that scene, which Patterson did, even with all their resources and expertise.
1: Yeah, you know what he's talking about here, basically. It's, like it's between one of just being possible... Right. And it being impossible for them, but possible for Roger. Right. So, yeah, it depends on what you're asking him then. And and as he's saying, it's not really clear what the conversations were. There aren't any records of those, just the testimony of Byrne having gone down there and what we heard from the three guys when they went to talk to some experts. But essentially what you're getting around to is that the important question here is whether a human or a machine could have been the thing that was filmed And essentially what the Disney tax said was that if they were tasked with making a Bigfoot movie, they would rather draw one than build one. You know what I'm saying? So it's a yeah. little easier to make it a cartoon than actually build an animatronic that could walk.
2: And if you're wondering, and we've addressed this previously, but if you're wondering if the image of Patty walking could have been optically placed into the footage of the scenery, John Green checked that out too. Green gave the film to Canna West Films Limited for analysis. Their technicians were convinced that no special effects of the time could have placed the Sasquatch image into the scene in the film what you see on the film was there at Bluff Creek. And Bill Munz confirms this later with mm-hmm. his more detailed analysis. Yeah. Now, his opinions about Disney and Universal being the best studios to consult about this, like I said, we're going to hear about that Later on. But for now, Munns thought that the Fox and MGM movie studios would have been better resources to consult because of their experience, and that specifically Stuart Freeborn in England would have been the best guy to consult for special effects prosthetic makeup because Freeborn had recently created the groundbreaking ape costumes for Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was produced by Kubrick and distributed by MGM. Well, there you go. We've heard from the people that do that for a living make
1: apes (laughs) walk around and beat up skeletons with bones yes but that's the best that you have seen on film you know at the time i know people like well why are you looking at movie people and talking about them maybe let's get back to the scientists some of you maybe a lot of you are saying why are we still talking about this at all the idea here is that they they t- those people aren't saying that cuz they no, turn, they're not they turned it off already. <laughs> I would suspect though some people like to uh, uh complain at us and then keep listening. Yeah, We yeah, then, we, like,
2: we know you're out there.
1: Yeah, it's like the terrible meal you still finished. <laughs> it's like this was awful but I ate all of it. You know, as we close out this section on the scientific experts and the movie experts is that It's a never-before-seen, or at least at that point, weird creature that nobody can really get a handle on. Is this an ape? Is it a human? Is it a guy in the costume? Is it something in between? If it is a guy in a costume, then who are the people that do this professionally? Well, those are the movie special effects people. Because if anyone was going to create a costume, you would have to know their skills and expertise and have some kind of access to the proper materials. If it was a guy in a suit. If it wasn't a guy in a suit, then maybe that thing is real. And what are the implications there? But no matter these two possibilities, the only thing we can do to properly analyze it in a logical and scientific manner is to go back to the film itself, which is why our next guest I think is perfect to hear from because not only is he an expert in creating motion picture special effects, costumes, and prosthetics. He's also now become an expert in analyzing the film itself.
2: That's going to wrap up part four of our series on the Patterson Gimlin film. We'll be back next week with our interview with Hollywood costume designer and creature making expert Bill Munns to discuss the idea of Patty being a man in a costume, as well as Bill's in-depth analysis of every frame of every known copy of the Patterson Gimlin film. Please remember to support our sponsors.
1: They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John
2: Bolin. Hello, folks. I'm General Josh Mikowski from Erie, PA. (sighs) My name is Jennifer. Hi, I'm Rachel Stokes. Pepperoni ball. I'm sick. Here we go. Galaxy wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was
1: composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps.